Well, good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. 22nd of April, 2015. It is time for our Wednesday night philosophy fest, the part of the week where we talk, we listen, we grow, we learn, and hopefully we go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. So, Mike, who do we have on first? All right. Up first today is Mr. Jeff. Jeff wrote in and said, I have a great desire to be well-informed, and I really like the videos from Freedom Main Radio and other sources that discuss what's really going on and what's really important. The problem is that the truth can be so damn depressing. Some examples are your recent video on the truth about school, another brick in the wall, and the California water crisis. Very informative and very important, but this stuff really gets me down. And this is to say nothing about how frustrating it is to live in a society where hardly anybody else even knows how to think. What is the secret to staying well-informed but also maintaining your sanity? Well, the, the key, Jeff, is to stop being such a selfish bastard. <laughs> that's, uh, that's my suggestion, uh, if that helps. Now, I could amplify that. <laughs> Do you like me to go a little further in that, or shall I just basically gratuitously insult you for no philosophical purpose? <laughs> so when you said the key is to not be a selfish bastard, you weren't kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Oh. Cool. But, but I have reason behind <laughs> what I'm saying, with the caveat that I'm also a selfish bastard sometimes. So, you know, that's, that's sort of what I'm, I'm trying to point out. Yeah, no, lay it on, man. Okay, now you live in the States, right? I do. Okay, so the great brontosaurus dying empire of heavily machine-gunned uh, <laughs> ancient dinosaurness uh, is kind of falling by the wayside. But I don't know if you know the degree to which the world outside the empire is doing pretty well mm-hmm. it's doing pretty well um so like a couple of decades ago one out of every two people in the world lived on a dollar 25 a day right now right. it's down to one in seven mm-hmm. which is really really incredible right it's down to one in seven from one in two in other words just over the last couple of decades there has been the greatest elimination of human poverty in the planet's history. That's cool, right? That's pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, again, does that help you with the California water crisis? Well, I hope a little bit, right? Because there's a world outside the West, right? Right. And just, look, I mean, this is a lot to do with China and it's a lot to do with India. But basically, there's just been this unbelievable revolution in human wealth. I'm hard to say more dollar twenty five, whatever, right? Hard to say wealth, but that's been uh, an amazing and astonishing thing that has occurred, right? Yeah, I would agree. What about crime? Down. Down, baby. Down, 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 down. Right? So FBI's count of violent crimes declined from seven hundred and forty seven per hundred thousand people in nineteen ninety three to three hundred and eighty seven. In 2012, that's like the last year that we have data. Homicide rate has fallen by 51%, robberies by 56%, aggravated assault cut by 45%, property crimes also way down. The rate of violent victimizations down 67% since 1993. 70% decline in rape and sexual assault, 66% decline in robbery, 77% decline in aggravated assault, and a 64% decline in simple assault. And that's astounding, right? So that's good. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, people sort of slowly getting the hang of not crapping (laughs) 
violence and aggression all over their kids and the fact that it's been also uh, corporal punishment has been banned in a lot of places and uh, and so on, right? And now, part of that also, I think, is that uh, I think it's what 31 states as of the 90s had had concealed carry laws and that um, you know the prevalence of concealed weapons has diminished crime. But and, and nobody knows, at least according to an expert I've talked to recently, nobody knows exactly why crime is diminishing to such a degree. I mean, that's like 20 years, less than 20 years. That's pretty significant, which leads me to believe that there's a huge market opportunity for a motivational speaker for criminals. Because, I mean, they're out there. They just, they seem to have lost their oomph, you know? And, and if you, you know, so if you're looking, this is, I throw this business idea out to all the listeners. I, I don't think I'll get a chance to pursue it. But motivational speaking for lazy criminals, I think that there's just a pent-up demand for, you know, get off your butts and go do some harm to society. And uh, so that, I think, is uh, an amazing thing. Infant mortality, right? Uh, just 50 years ago, more than 100 children of every 1,000 who were born died within a year. 50 years ago? That has ago? gone down 50 years ago. Holy crap. That figure is down 80%. 80%. In the 1500s and 1600s, the world's great powers were constantly fighting and fighting and fighting. And great power conflict, you know, after the Second World War, probably because of nuclear weapons, but it shifted to proxy wars, and even that seems to have diminished, right? Yeah. And from the beginning of humanity until about 1900, like global life expectancy was about 30 years. Now, I mean, a lot of that was skewed to infant mortality. Like if you made it to 18, you could probably go on quite a bit. So in 1900, it was 30 years. Now, global, do you know, globally, do you know what it is now? Uh, much higher. I have no idea. Excluding Detroit, uh, it is 67. And it's almost 68. So it's gone from 30 years to 67 or 68 isn't that astounding? Yeah. Um, according to the Center for Global Development, more than half the world's people live in places where the GDP has increased more than fivefold over 50 years. India's economy has gone up tenfold since 1960, China's 17-fold. And uh, even in sub-Saharan Africa, from 1990 to 2012, daily caloric intake went up 200 calories a day, which, you know, pretty significant. In 1980, mean number of school years of schooling an adult got, 4.7. By 2011, 7.6. So if you sort of look outside the empire, the world is going, undergoing a, a renaissance and a loosening of the bonds of disease and poverty and ignorance and so on that has never before occurred in human history. Hmm. I mean, just astounding, astounding, astounding stuff. And, you know, even within the empire, there's some cool stuff going on, right? Because even within the empire, there's a vast reduction in rates of uh, criminality. Now, I mean, to be fair about the rates of criminality, they bulged <laughs> quite a bit, you know, from the 70s to the 90s, and there is a decline, but the decline nonetheless is occurring and is huge. Is, I mean, it's not like 5% or 10%, but, you know, 50, 60 plus percent. The fact that you, and, you, you listen to this show, I would assume, right? Re regularly yeah. enough to get depressed, is that? 
Is that right? I didn't mean to frame it that way. The the show with the greatest masochism per WAV form (laughs) that you can conceive of. No, I shouldn't shouldn't say that. I mean, because we do talk about, you know, solutions. I mean, to, to be fair, everybody demands that I provide solutions and then ignores the solutions. <laughs> you know, doctor, <laughs> I keep coughing up off my lung. Maybe you should stop smoking. What? <laughs> that's, that's wrong. Why would you tell me that? You're crazy, right? And so, uh, you know, it's libertarians. <laughs> pick up libertarians. Love me some libertarians. But, you know, they get mad at me for saying um, what I said about the Walter Scott shooting and so on. The cops are nasty, malicious, mean, whatever, right, thugs and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, I don't really, I think they're propagandized, but let's just say that that's true. Well, I've already given everyone the recipe on how to breed fewer cops, which is to spread the message of peaceful parenting. And are libertarians really devoting themselves to that? It would seem not, because <laughs> it's a lot easier to complain than improve. So, sure. uh, I, yeah, so I would say that uh, even things like divorce has, uh, has leveled off and is beginning uh, its, its decline. And yeah, there's, there's things that are still terrible, and I'm not going to sort of ignore those. But the world as a whole, it's like this weird, you know, bicycle thing. You know, like in a bicycle, one pedal goes up and the other pedal goes down. The West falls, but everywhere else, you know, it's it's doing, not everywhere else, but vast sections of the rest of the world are doing staggeringly fantastic. Like, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to exaggerate. This is not hyperbole. The last couple of decades for the world's poor have been unbelievable, unprecedented, staggering, unprecedented, incomprehensible, uh, simply because they have, you know, delved into a wee tatter smack of of free market uh, uh, opportunities. Now, I get, you know, and and I I can already hear people saying, and I I get it, I, I get it, some of the Chinese economy is growing because of fiat currency and because of ghost cities and because of currency manipulation. I get, I get all of that. I get all of that, but not all of it. I was in China for business just after Y2K. So I guess what, uh, 15 years ago. Oh, sorry, time flash. Um, and I think <laughs> my balls just uh, hung a little heavier. You know those uh, by the knee castanets that old guys have. <laughs> It's like slowly winding out a fishing rod. Anyway, but, um, uh, and it was just, um, it's just really beginning to take hold then. And uh, I would go down to the market and I would, uh, for things that I wanted to buy, uh, I would go down and haggle. Of course, nobody spoke each other's language really, but we would use a calculator, hand it back and forth and punch numbers in. And that's what we would uh, haggle by. But the idea of haggling, you know, even five or 10 years before in an open market in, in China was incomprehensible. And so... It is, uh, it is truly astounding stuff that is happening in the world. And outside of the Industrial Revolution, uh, which, you know, <laughs> did not do a whole lot for India, uh, it, per capita income in India was lower in 1950 than I believe it was in 1850. And so this is what I mean when I say, and I say this to myself too, like there's a world outside of your dark and doorway blues won't haunt you anymore. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was like, whenever I start these phrases, I have a end of the songs. But there is, there is a world outside of the West, and there's a world outside of the empire. And um, it's, it's unbelievable. And now, of course, the media doesn't want to talk about this, right? Because <laughs> it's not a government program. <laughs> I agree. Right? Because there's this massive instruction 
on, hey, we know how to eliminate poverty. Do everything the exact opposite of what you're doing in the West. <laughs> That's how you eliminate poverty. And so the media doesn't want to talk about it because it's not foreign aid. It's not a, a huge government. It's not redistributionist policies. It's simply loosening uh, the shackles on on free trade. That's that's what's doing it, and so it goes against the narrative, which you know, I mean, the left certainly has, and the right seems to be uh, hard. It's hard to fight. Ah, the right, the right always loses because they don't fight dirty. The left always fights dirty, and the right uh, has this sort of fastidiousness about fighting dirty. Um, I was it. Whitaker Chambers uh, said uh, after he broke with the Communist Party in the 1930s. He said that the battle for the future is going to be fought by the communists and the ex-communists because only the ex-communists have seen as deeply into the evil that is communism and people on the right, the conservatives, simply don't understand the enemy that they're facing. They don't understand the depth of the evil of the enemy that they're facing and they don't know what means are necessary to uh, win against it. And so it's the ex-communists who are going to have to fight with the communists and the people and the conservatives are just going to mouth platitudes and that does seem to be uh, not a wildly off prediction or synopsis of the situation. But if you look at the world outside where you are, I mean, look, look at violent crime and all that. I think that's fantastic. Uh, rates of child abuse. Uh, Mike, if you can get me some statistics on that, there are drops in rates of child abuse. Now, I mean, some of that, again, who knows? Who knows? I don't, you know, I just, I don't run across a lot of parents who, who hit. You know, there's still some yellers and so on. I just, I just don't. And, I mean, it's not like they're not out there, and I'll see them, and I'll talk to them and all that, but it seems to be kind of falling away. I mean, if you, I mean, back in um, the days of, uh, oh gosh, what was that show? Little House on the Prairie, they'd still take kids out to the woodshed and whoop their asses, but the idea of anything showing up in Modern Family, uh, something like the, I mean, not not the uh, demographic group, but the, the television yeah, show, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just not going to show up on little house of the prairie they used to beat the kids i mean they would say that they well were... it was off camera right. but yeah they used to they used to take the you know it's time to take you out to the woodshed little john wow. and pick up a belt and now of course it was describing an earlier time but you couldn't really imagine that even now so here we go 1990 to 2010 substantiated cases of sexual abuse dropped from 23 per 10,000 children under 18 to 8.6 per 10,000. It's a 62% decrease substantiated cases of sexual abuse. Now, there's caveats, of course. I mean, it's not, is it perfect? Of course not. But nonetheless. Even if they made a show like Little House on the Prairie now that takes place in the same time period, they wouldn't include, you know, the disciplining, if you can call it that. Because no, it's not, they wouldn't. Yeah, that's interesting. That hasn't been around since, uh, since the 80s. Um, and so we've had a. Um, a 62% decrease just in 20 years of, of, six, of childhood sexual abuse. 3% drop just from 2009 to 2010. The Minnesota Student Survey charted a 29% decline in reports of sexual abuse by an adult who was not a family member from 1992 to 2010, with a 28% drop in reports of sexual abuse by a family member. Uh, the majority of sexual abuse cases involve family members uh, and so on. Um, 2012 reports of child abuse and neglect have dropped nationwide for the fifth consecutive year and abuse-related child fatalities are also at a five-year low. And uh, 2007, there were 723,000 cases of um, child abuse or neglect in America. Uh, 723,000 in 2007. 2010, 695,000. 2011, 681,000. 
thousands. It's it's declining. Now, all the people in power are still the same traumatized, you know, John McCain's mom used to beat the crap out of him and make him sit in a bath of ice water as punishment. I mean, so all the people who are still in power are all going through the same, you know, acting out the same traumatized bomb in the brain stuff. But this next generation, I mean, is it a coincidence that child abuse suffered a huge decline just when this show began? Yes, it is. <laughs> We've probably contributed a little bit to, to that decline, but um, there are other forces at work. And um, it, it is immense progress. Now, you want to look at um, not the rate of decline uh, of a civilization, but whether the decline is accelerating or decelerating. Now, economically, it is accelerating, which is exactly what you would expect because we have an older generation in power. But what's being sown, the, the next generation is growing up with far less violence. Now, some of this, of course, is problematic because the schools are in, in some ways getting worse. And that's a, a challenge and a problem. But uh, just as the schools are getting worse, the capacity to educate yourself outside of school has gone up enormously, right? So, I mean, the idea that you have a tiny little thing, smaller than a deck of cards, that can access pretty much all of the knowledge that humanity can put in a computer is truly astounding. I mean, it's, it's literally mind-blowing. You don't even have to have any money. Just go to the library and you can use it there, right? That's astonishing. The, I mean, the fact that this show has pumped past 100 million show views or downloads, I mean, that's the biggest philosophy shot in the arm humanity has ever, ever, ever received. Now, I obviously believe that philosophy is the most important thing, and it's what humanity needs the most of in order to heal and grow and have a peaceful world. And so this is... Your philosophy is getting its greatest shot through your support, through this conversation, through what I'm doing, and through what the other people working here are doing. Philosophy is having its greatest shot. And uh, so we, uh, we're going to see what happens. But this is incredibly new, right? Really, I mean, I started right at the beginning of all of this stuff. I, I remember trying to puzzle out an XML feed, <laughs> right, sitting at my kitchen table in 2006, I think it was, or 2000. Yeah, I think 2000, trying to puzzle out an, an XML feed and <laughs> when bandwidth was unbelievably expensive, you know, back uh, back in the day, about eight or nine years ago. And that is um, the capacity to have this kind of conversation, like with you and, and to have everyone listen to it and to get information out there that is not gatekeeped by the mainstream media. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think that we are living in a time that in the future anybody with uh, the heart of a lion and the <laughs> balls of a sumo wrestler would love to live in uh, because I think this is the greatest chance for virtue to ascend and for evil to fail that the world has ever been given. And um, so that to me is where the excitement is. I mean, the fact that I'm able to tell you or other people are able to tell you about what has caused the California water crisis is amazing. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, of course, life way before the internet when, you know, if it wasn't on the six o'clock news or the daily paper, I mean, you couldn't find it. Right, it didn't right. exist right. fundamentally. You could sort of go pour over things in the library and so on. 
But now, whenever a false narrative is put forward, man alive. I mean, do you see how quickly it gets deconstructed? Yeah. It is a I mean, it's thing. astonishing. Now, of course, some people go, in my mind, <laughs> you know, not everything can be a false flag, people. <laughs> but uh, it is astounding just how many people seize on and spend huge amounts of time and energy processing and deconstructing uh, narratives that are, uh, are put forward. And that, having access to that is just astounding. That is really great. I mean, I remember taking a, a course in uh, race relations when I was in, uh, uh, in university. This was in undergrad. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I didn't buy the, even back then, I didn't buy or accept the, you know, slavery plus racism is, that's all, that's the sort of beginning and end of the explanation of everything. And finding information to see if there was any support for countering that case was virtually impossible. There's no political correctness on the internet. You know, the, the, the language police, the thought police that infest the halls of academia, you know, the, the cultural Marxists, the European Freedom Club hating sons of bitches, they barely exist on the internet. And you can go and you can say things, you know, if you're willing to take the hits, you can go and say things that would be impossible to say in a university. So this, and I, I sort of say Wild West in the very best possible sense of the world, but this, the word, but this Wild West of radical thought, where you don't need permission from a professor, you don't need permission from the king, you don't need to subjugate yourself to the PC of an editor or uh, some sort of uh, uh, collective group in a, a newspaper, you can simply say, things and make cases and make arguments in a forum that reaches the whole world who wants in the whole world anybody who wants to listen pretty much can can read and hear these things with no gatekeepers and if we can't make freedom work with these kinds of tools at our disposal then we have no right to be the guardians of the fire like we just have no right to be the guardians of the fire if we can't make an effective case for freedom with all of these tools at our disposal and, um, I mean, even things like, for instance, in, when fiat currencies have hit the wall in the past, there's been nowhere to go, usually, but totalitarianism, right? But we have, in the form of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, we have an entire shadow system of friction-free, highly programmable, highly scalable, blockchain-based information and trade transfer currency, we have an entire infrastructure that has spontaneously come to life during the waning days of a fiat currency apocalypse. That has never existed before in history, where it's like, oh, my horse died, and look, a rocket ship picked me up. I mean, normally your horse dies in the desert, you just die, you know, two miles from your horse. But in this case, you know, we don't have to have some Iron Chancellor Hitler guy to come in and revalue the Reichsmark and so on. We, we just don't have to have any of that stuff. So with all of these tools at our, uh, all of these, I guess you could say, arrows in our quiver, if we can't take down the dominant paradigm, then it's our fault. <laughs> right?
right? It's not. I mean, the statists are going to fight for the state. Yeah, statists going to state. <laughs> Why'd you got to be such a stater? But so statists going to state, and and they're going to do their thing, and they're going to yell and scream and spread lies and do all of that. Rules of radical Saul Alinsky, left hit below the belt, dirty. Uh, bite you on the balls kind of wrestling stuff. They're going to do all of that kind of stuff. And that's natural. That's what they're going to do. That's the nature of the beast. But, man, if, if, we can't, if we can't make a compelling enough case with all of this incredible technology at our disposal, with the, voice, uh, the voices of reason and curiosity and empiricism and philosophy having the loudest and widest possible reach, well... We, we have failed freedom. Uh, we have failed the future because there's no reason why we can't. Because if you'd have said to me 20 years ago, oh, yeah, Steph, you, you know, you've been talking to individuals about freedom, you know, since you were 16, about philosophy and all that. And, uh, you know, you've maybe talked to a couple of hundred people over 20 years, maybe. Probably is a high estimate. But, uh, and, you know, but don't worry <laughs> because in the future you'll be able to record in your car and <laughs> spread uh, philosophy and, and reason and evidence uh, to the world and you know, millions and millions of, of downloads and I don't know how many people and all that, I would be like, no way. I would be like, hey, if you give me that, you give me that lever and I can move the world. You give me that, you know, that old thing, if you have a big enough lever, you can move the world. You give me that lever. I can move the world. And I think that there's a lack of appreciation and gratitude on the part of those of us fighting for reason and freedom. Just the incredible gifts that we have been given, that were unguessed for and unprecedented and, you know, 10 years ago were unfathomable in many ways. And uh, having this kind of gift, having this kind of opportunity is uh, really, um, we should we should wake up every day and, and be happy and grateful for it because now you know we finally in a sense being given the weapons and we're on the battlefield you know before we weren't even able to get on the battlefield right i mean you'd have like you had like murray rothbard and and, and ron paul with their like hand typed newsletters photocopied and mailed out and stuff like i mean you weren't even on the battlefield now you know we've got the best weapons we don't have the best numbers but who cares about that right but we have the best weapons and we're finally on the battlefield and i mean if if we can't win um, I think that the future will hold us in uh, in great contempt, and I, I think rightly so. I hear you, man. So, um, so oftentimes I watch your videos, and not to, not to pick on. I mean, I shouldn't pick on the California water crisis or whatever. It's kind of arbitrary, but I'm like, how does this guy just log all this information? How do I log it? What do you mean? Like, how do I get it and communicate it? I know. I mean. Um, pour over this data and make a video about it and just not get down about it, you know? And, uh, and, and then you go on a rant and I mean that, you know, in a good way about, you know, people are just crazy and the world's insane. And I'm like, how does he have a positive attitude about life? Just like, you know, when he's, do, you know, immersing himself in this, these things, you know what I mean? Well, the problem is I knocked up my wife, right? And, you know, because I knocked out my wife, I have a child. And so I have no choice, right? There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing that says commitment like having a kid. Hey, honey, welcome to the world. This is the world I have brought you into. And uh, so, yeah, nothing uh, sort of, I mean, I had a commitment before I had uh, a kid. Uh, but um, that, that's sort of one aspect, which is, uh, 
you know, you corner a rat enough and he'll take on a grizzly, right? And um, when you have a kid, you, I think, you know, you owe it to your child to make the world as, as great as, as, as you can. And so there's that, that's one aspect uh, of, of things that I think is, uh, is certainly important for me. The second, is, the second is that the California water crisis would have gone down in history in the same way that the Great Depression of the 1930s would have gone down in history, right? Failure of capitalism. Greedy first world people using too many resources, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like Barack Obama talking about the need to conserve resources. And now I must fly on Air Force One to golf. It's like you're not serious, right? I mean, wasn't that thing used like 7,000 gallons an hour of, of fuel? Or like Prince Charles gave a speech on the need to conserve our precious natural resources and then took a helicopter home? <laughs> you know, I was, I was explaining this to my daughter at, at dinner. Um, uh, and even Harrison Ford, you know, he's like, uh, you know, we should not frivolously waste our resources. You know what my hobby is? I'm a pilot. I fly for pleasure. It's like, well, I think that, uh, anyway, I, I think that's just the kind of stuff you have to say. Um, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio has been like a big environmental guy for many, many, many years. <laughs> and uh, um, even that Billy Goat Gruff uh, beard of his, uh, which I guess is his opportunity to save water. But he, uh, to do, I think this came out of the Sony emails hack, but uh, to negotiate some movie deal, he flew, like over a two or three week period, he flew back and forth from New York to Los Angeles six times on a private jet. (laughs) And it's like, oh, you got to, I'm not, I'm not saying the guy has to walk, but sweet mother of all that's holy. I mean... (laughs) Maybe, maybe uh, you could be just a little bit more forgiving uh, about people's uh, desire to have an, a, a, you know, a 75 watt rather than a 60 watt bulb, given that <laughs> you are, you know, basically digging up dinosaurs and raping them with your <laughs> Western imperialistic uh, uh, waste of, of resources, giant echo unfriendly dildo. I mean, that would just be uh, astonishing, right? Yeah, $200,000 worth of private jet travel in just six weeks in twenty. 20- 14 and uh that's i mean it's quite impressive that you go lecturing the peasants about not eating too much bread uh when you're basically about to explode from dough so anyway don't rape the dinosaurs leo dicaprio please don't rape the dinosaurs i believe we have a uh show title uh (laughs) because we are just click wars anyway but um no i mean and i've got a whole show about echo hypocrisy on on the part of people and so on but what would have happened, of course, in the past is that there would have just been this, oh, you know, capitalism denudes the resources from the planet and so on, right? Like somebody was uh, posting, um, I just, I find that these, uh, oh, oh, rant, here it comes, ah, can't stop it. <laughs> but um, um, I thought we already did that part. No, no. But, <laughs> um, did I shriek? Did I sound like a little girl? But, um, uh, well, so all of these these people who post about you know overpopulation overpopulation the world is so overpop that's nonsense you could take the entire population of the world and fit it very comfortably in the state of Texas hey, overpopulation is nonsense now excessive use of resources yeah okay you can certainly consider that a problem but that's what the free market is designed to cure the free market is designed to cure excessive resources by raising their prices until people can curb consumption find alternatives all that kind of stuff right 
And so if somebody was saying, if everyone in the world lived like people in the U.S., we'd need three Earths to sustain the population because there's no such thing as supply and demand. <laughs> I just think that's just hilarious. You know, I mean, I, don't, I didn't even know what to say about that, you know. That was a great meal. It took me an hour to eat. If I ate 24 hours a day, I would be very unwell. I'd be like Mr. Creosote from a Monty Python movie. But, of course, you get full and you stop. And the whole point of the free market is to make sure that we don't run out of stuff and that we use things as intelligently as possible and that we curb usage. I mean, we all understand that. But just this, you know, the world is overpopulated. Yeah, 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 you're too lazy to have kids. I get it. But please, God, don't just say, I'm lazy. I don't want to get up and feed a baby. I don't want to get up when my kid gets up. I don't want to help my kid with homework. I like playing Xbox. I don't want to get out of my pajamas. Actually, you can stay in your pajamas with kids. They don't care. <laughs> but just, just say you're lazy. But God, don't, please don't cloak it in some sort of kneeling before the clitoris of Gaia trying to flick her into some sort of uh, happy, sustainable orgasm. I mean, come on. Just say, I'm lazy. I don't want to have children. I don't want to face that I don't want to have children. I don't want to talk about being lazy. So I'm just going to say that I'm virtuous for not sharing my seed. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Because Lord knows that uh, all the people who aren't virtuous are thinking exactly the same thing. You know, if I was a bad guy in, in the world, if I was like a mean, terrible, bad guy in the world, then what I would do is I would put out really complicated arguments that only intelligent people could understand that would convince them not to breed. You know, <laughs> that, that would be my, my, I would wake up in the morning and I'd say, well, you know, I don't want to fight like a soldier. I want to fight like a spy. I want to fight like a propagandist. I want to fight like an indoctrinator. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and get the least empathetic people to breed the most. And I'm trying to get the most empathetic and intelligent people to breed the least. So I'm going to tell them about the environment and overpopulation. And, <laughs> and then all of those who are sensitive and who can think in the long term will be doubtful about, about the utility of having uh, children. And then all of the people who don't give a shit about all of that stuff will just breed like rabbits. It's that idiocracy thing, right? And it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. You know, I've never, um, you know, th those people who are sort of embattled minorities, they never think this way. I mean, Jew Jews don't say to other Jews, you know, it's really important, don't get married, or if you do get married, for heaven's sakes, don't have kids because, because overpopulation. You know, <laughs> from what I've heard from Jews, it's like, Hey, if you don't have kids, you're just continuing the work of Hitler. So breed, breed, breed. <laughs> I just think it's funny. I mean, people uh, just, just it, yeah, only, only some people, and this is why I'm not even sure that certain groups of people are even fit to continue because it's like, oh, but the environment is, <laughs> come on. I mean, I'm not sure the degree to which Muslims with their like reproduction rate of like, you know, eight per fingernail uh, are really concerned, <laughs> concerned about the environment. And I just, I, again, I'm not trying to say, like, let's not be concerned about the environment. I'm, I'm more than happy to contribute to environmental protection, and that was my career for quite a long time. So I speak with some knowledge, but, you know, just please, God, the number of people who are like, well, I've chosen not to have children because of fears of overpopulation and uh, stripping of the Earth's resources and blah de blah de blah And it's like, ah, oh, God. No, I mean, come on. See, now, Stefan, on the one hand, it seems like you're aggravated as you talk about, you know, what you just talked about. And on the other hand, it seems like you kind of enjoy just that you're splashing a, a drink in the face of 
these people that you're ranting about. You know what I mean? Like I'm like, no. It's kind of. <laughs> I must be frank with you. I do not know what you mean. Doesn't mean it's, you're not making sense. It's. It. I hear aggravation. I mean, you're talking about something that's aggravating you, but somehow you don't get down. I'd like. It. I'd like smart people to have more kids. I'd like smart people to have more kids. Is am I so wrong in that? I. <laughs> I don't feel that I don't feel that the world can can really be harmed by more smart people who raise their you know more, more smart children who are raised peacefully. I think that that is going to be the salvation of the world and um you know uh, uh indoctrination is easier than conversion, right? And uh, this goes right back to my novel Revolutions which you can get at freedomainradio.com uh, which is basically about a revolutionary who well, goes through the whole process and comes out with a better idea than revolution, which is kind of how I sort of live my life. But, uh, but no, I, I would like smart people to uh, commit to, to having kids. I would. Uh, I, I think that's pretty essential. There, is, uh, there seems to be, I'm, I'm no expert, there seems to be a genetic component to intelligence. <gasps> you know, I mean, the estimates range, but there is a genetic component to intelligence. And, um, and uh, of course, the other people are like, well, just adopt. <laughs> like, well, yeah, you certainly could. And there's nothing wrong with adoption. Um, uh, there's nothing wrong with adoption. It's, it's great, and, and it helps kids and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but the reality is that uh, smart people are not likely to adopt a kid who's as smart as they are. Huh. Just, you know, on, on average, statistically. Huh. Uh, it's just not uh, going to be... Are going to be the case. So, yeah, just this idea that ad- just adopt. Well, first of all, the people who say just adopt, from my experience, never end up adopting. Because, <laughs> you know, that means getting off your ass and filling out some pa- paperwork. Is that hard to do? And, by, is it hard to do, by the way? Isn't it? Is it yes. Yeah. Yes, it is very hard to do. Um, yeah, we just, when we do, um, it's coming, we, we just did an interview with uh, Dr. Kevin Beaver. Okay. And, um, I think it's because Mike was searching for Beaver on the internet and just came across this guy. Oh, cool. At least that's my understanding. Hey. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> and um, he meant the actual uh, in the woods. No, he he mistyped Buck. <laughs> I was he, interested anyway. in building a dam. Okay, let's just be yeah. about that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. So anyway, you can check out that. But um, cool. Uh, but yeah, so so it is. Uh, you know, it is important for you know intelligence is. A um is not is not is not for everyone. <laughs> Intelligence is not <laughs> inherent in everyone, and um you know like it or not, there are is some genetic component to intelligence. So if smart people don't breed, everybody just gets dumber, and the world uh, tends to slide back into <laughs> a complete mess. And look, I mean, I'm again, I'm not saying that you you owe it to the future, you owe it to the species, or anything like that. Um, I just want people to be honest, and this environmental cover. For oh, I don't want to have kids, <laughs> you know. Good thing your parents didn't say that, huh? So you're taking the gift, you're not paying it forward. Don't bogart that life, man. But um, I just want people to be honest and say, ah, I'm lazy. But the idea that they're going to pin this echo medal on their chest for um, through their indifference contributing to the growing idiocy of the species, <laughs> yeah. it's just annoying. I get you. So anyway, I, I don't know if I left you <laughs> in a positive frame of mind, but that would be. Um, uh, my approach. There's, there's this fantastic stuff happening in the world. If the world as a whole was just getting worse, I mean, yeah, I would get it, right? But, uh, but, the, but uh, I think that I think what happened was in the 90s, 
there was um, in the late eighties, early nineties, there was kind of a, a tipping point, and uh, that tipping point was towards more peaceful parenting. And I think kids are still being yelled at a lot, and they're still getting a lot of crap in schools. And but 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 I think that the childhood is far less traumatic than it was now. As, as I mentioned recently, like I went to look at my old boarding school website. And, you know, there's no mention of caning six-year-old children for climbing a fence, right? Uh, it's gone. It's gone. You just, you don't see it. I mean, it's still a lot of control going on. And um, a lot of indoctrination. But nonetheless, there is less emotional, uh, sorry, less physical trauma uh, occurring for kids. Lower rates of sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, and so on. And that's, I mean, that's, if I can't get behind that, then this show has been completely in vain. I mean, not just this show, but the show <laughs> as a whole. And the one, can I tell you one other thing? Let me just give you one last thing. Sure. To, to make your, your dark heart sing with a kind of Mozart Requiem style glee. Uh, are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Okay. So in the past, being uninformed was excusable. Because, you know, it took a lot of work. You had to find people. You had to, uh, like, find the right people to read. You had to, it was accidentally exposed to it. Like, it, it, to figure out what was going wrong in the California water crisis in 1975 would have cost you, like, a week in the library. And then you'd have found out about it. And what would you have done with it? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. I mean, I can, I never become an expert on anything, but I can come up with some reasonable stuff to talk about like in two days, about the California water crisis, right? So not only has the cost of acquiring knowledge gone down hugely, but the value of holding that knowledge has gone up exponentially. I mean, and even if you're just someone who comments on other people's videos, or even if you just write a little blog, or even if you send out some sort of email to a bunch of people, or even if you just post it on Facebook or whatever, right? The value of having information has gone up enormously, while the effort and cost required to, 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 required to acquire that information has gone down enormously. That is a fantastic tipping point, right? Yeah. And so as the price of something goes down and the value of it goes up, well, right? Look at the spread of cell phones, right? Right. And so we have this world now where to be uninformed is without excuse and without forgiveness. So it's one thing to say, oh, the California water crisis is because of resource consumption and Al Gore flushing three toilets at the same time or whatever, right? That's one thing. Like, that's one in 1980 or 1990 or 2000. That was one thing, right? But, holy shit. If you don't know stuff now, you are aiming to not know stuff. Hmm. So, it allows you to be less gentle with people who don't know anything, <laughs> right? So, people who just know, people who just parrot the party line, oh, yeah. Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, financial crisis was the result of 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 deregulation. <laughs> like, you are a complete moron, and and you now know that anybody who says something that's so easy to rebut, 
And even if it's not easy to rebut, it's easy to find alternative viewpoints. You know that all they're doing is going to an echo chamber to reinforce their initial prejudices, Mm -hmm. and you can call them out on that. Hmm. And so having really, like somebody was saying the other, uh, like uh, on on YouTube about how, well, well, the Fed overprinting, Federal Reserve policy had nothing to do with the great depression it's like are you kidding me didn't ben bernanke just admit that that was the case yeah (laughs) and he was the chairman of the fed might know a little bit more than you right so when somebody has really bad information then you don't have to be as patient with them anymore right oh was it alan greenspan no i think it was can you look that up mike who who i think i think bernanke wrote a paper on how the fed was responsible for the great depression let me check for the for the boom yeah just to have a check no, Alan Greenspan unfortunately blamed the free market <laughs> for um, for the crash, and and I'm not saying that that you know anybody who doesn't agree with you know the Fed caused the, the the bubble and the crash that they're just you can just rail against them or anything like that. But you have to at least know the alternative arguments, mm-hmm. right? You at least have to know and rebut the alternative arguments. And so if somebody says, "Well, there is an argument," I'm sorry, you're right, Ben Bernanke said Federal Reserve caused the Great Depression. <laughs> All right. He wrote a whole paper on it, right? Uh, I'm seeing headlines about it. I'm not sure if it was a paper or an interview, but he definitely... Yeah, he blamed it, right? And so it's, it's common knowledge within financial circles now that, um, or at least well-educated financial circles, that the Federal Reserve caused the bubble and the Great Depression. Of course, nobody ever translates that into the here and now. Maybe we should do a show on that, because I don't know if enough people know that. But uh, uh, it's so funny to think that Ben Bernanke is closer to Ayn Rand than Alan Greenspan. It's a... <laughs> It's a whole other mind frack, but uh, but yeah. So when when you can lo- you can let loose with both cannons on the uninformed now because it's so easy to become informed hmm. that you just don't have to be as patient with people anymore. If that makes sense, or if they're informed, but only on one, only of their arguments. <laughs> no, but that is being uninformed. Right, right, right. That is being uninformed, and that is just being a terrible person. You know, I mean, just think, think of the people who are spreading the, the anti-vaccination message, right? I just read this, this terrible story. I'm sorry, Mike, to keep you typing. Uh, some woman whose kids all got sick with whooping cough. Uh, if you can find that article, Mike, and give it a wee bit of a read, that might be uh, helpful. Uh, but yeah, like the anti-vax stuff. And again, I'm no expert on, on the science of vaccinations or not, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy to not have smallpox and <laughs> all these other things floating around. But... Um, so I would, you know, the, the fact that information is so easy that anybody who doesn't have, uh, doesn't admit to any exposure to alternative arguments, um, you can be very uh, frank with people like that, just how dangerous and, and ridiculous they're being. So I guess I kind of hear, like, underlying what you're saying is, like, you can choose what you want to focus on. I mean, there's a lot of good things happening. There's a lot of bad things happening, you know. Well, no, because that's so passive. Right. What I'm saying is we have a greater capacity to make good things happen than has ever right. existed before in human history. Like we're not just sitting here. There used to be this show when I was a kid. I don't know what the hell it was called, but it was it was in the 70s. And people would it was, I think it was usually women. And then they would look at all these goods go by on a conveyor belt and every good you could remember, you got to keep. You know, uh, an iron. And it was like crappy. It wasn't like, and a car. It was like a curling iron, uh, half a toaster, uh, a piece of bread, uh, a gull's wing. Uh, like it was always just crap. That, <laughs> but I guess, you know, it was useful to some people. 
And I don't want us to sort of look and say, well, this thing is good and this thing is bad. And I guess there's 60% good and 40% bad or 40% good and 60 That's very passive. What I'm saying is that we have a greater capacity to make good things happen as thinkers and communicators than has ever occurred before in human history. Yeah, anti-vaccination mom finally agreed for her seven children to be vaccinated um, after her entire family contracted whooping cough and had to be quarantined. So she's from Canada. She refused to fully immunize her kids over fears that it could lead to autism and other conditions. No, no, no. I think autism is rising because sperm is getting dusty because older men are having kids. I'm not sure, but that's sort of one thing I've heard. And um, so she said, uh, she said, right now my family is living the consequences of misinformation and fear. I understand the families in our community may be mad at us for putting their kids at risk. I want them to know that we tried our best to protect our kids when we were afraid of vaccination. We're doing our best now for everyone's sake by getting them back up to date. Uh, actually, the thing that bothered me about this woman is that uh, it's because I think her sister had a baby and she was worried about some illness passing from her kids to the baby. So it's like, oh, okay, so every other kid that your kids come in contact with, to hell with them. But if it's your family, suddenly vaccination starts to look pretty good. And uh, anyway, so it's, uh, it's rough. So, Well... As far as I understand the vaccination thing, all the all the anti-vaccination so-called stuff that I've seen is just arguing for freedom and that parents shouldn't be forced to vaccinate their kids, which I would imagine you would agree with. Well, I, you know, uh, of course not force, but the, again, this is sort of the misinformation stuff, right? I mean, The Lancet in the 90s published this information about a link between, I think it was the measles, mumps, rubella or MMR vaccine and um, and autism, and then the the study was completely discredited, and they published a retraction. And you still hear people talking about the stuff as if it's true. Hmm. There's actually we just published a podcast two nine three six titled "Mandatory Vaccinations," where Steph goes into the subject in detail. So uh-huh. yeah, I mean there, there'll be ways of encouraging people to to get vaccinated in a free society, um, but right. people just have bad information about it. That's all. And of course, yeah, everything you put in your body has certain risks. And there absolutely will be some kids who get vaccinated and then appear to become autistic. But, you know, correlation is not causation, as uh, I'm (laughs) reminded eternally every time I put out anything. But um, uh, so. Also, the consumption of SSRIs by a pregnant woman leads to higher rates of autism in her children. There's just a bunch of things, uh, like Steph mentioned as well, the older the male is when he has children. I had no idea about this until recently, but there, you know there's all types of risks associated with having children as an older woman. There's also risks from uh, dusty sperm, as Steph put it, older men having children, and <laughs> increased rate of autism is on there, in addition to a bunch of other stuff. It, it may be worth putting out a presentation with all the other things we know, and again, correlation is not causation, about things that increase the rate of autism, because, you know, there's a lot of additional information out there other than just... Hey, look at vaccinations. Yeah, guys, if if your Billy Joel style sixty five year old sperm is using a fucking walker <laughs> to climb up the fallopian tubes, you may not be coming out with the highest quality human being from the. From the it is not like wine. It does not. It's not like cheddar. You know, it's like well, I guess it is like cheddar that you leave out in the sun. Um, but uh, yeah, if uh, if it if it needs a conveyor belt to get out from your ball sack, then uh, it may not be the sprightliest sperm. I mean, Anthony Quinn had a, a kid late. I think Billy Joel isn't he just having a kid? He's sixty five years old, and um, 
I, I, and I think, as far as I understand it, he's going to get Gollum. That's my understanding. I'm not obviously a, a doctor, but uh, <laughs> precious. First thing he does comes out, goes for the wedding ring. It's terrible. Scampers off down the hallway. <laughs> Got to go after him with furry feet. It's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah, he's 65. Yeah, from slow down, you crazy child, to speed up, you ancient sperm. Anyway, that's a reference to a Billy Joel song, for those who don't know. <laughs> and can't recognize it from my joyful rendition. All right, man. Do you mind if we move on to the next caller? No, I appreciate it. You're full of a joyful noise now, right? Going to go out and do something for freedom? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, should I just convince you to become a criminal like we were talking about at the beginning then? That might work. <laughs> Come on, look at these soft people. They're soft. You need to go out and toughen them up a little bit. Don't you know that a civilization rises on hobnail boots and falls on silk slippers? People are getting too soft. I've had enough of this mere Call of Duty digital stuff going through their window with stun guns. Anyway, thanks so much. I had to interrupt my Call of Duty for Call of Duty. Anyway. <laughs> One of these days, I think you need to do the motivational speech to criminals as a show. You think? That, uh... Yeah. <laughs> People are getting soft. Dolphins don't swim if there are no sharks. Be the shark. Strengthen the dolphins. All right. Okay, maybe I will. <laughs> I feel I feel I have quite a quite a well to tap into down there. Clearly, clearly, this being virtuous has been quite a strain. It has created a giant cyst of incipient evil right underneath the surface. All right, I've had it with trying to motivate you people with podcasts. I'm getting me some tanks <laughs> to drive people into the ocean, as Jan Hedfold said way back. Oh, right, right. Okay. All right. Well, up next is Ilias. He wrote in and said, after bringing philosophy into my romantic life, my friendships and my family relationships, I'm struggling to bring philosophy into the career side of my life. What are the benefits of bringing philosophy into the space of making money? Hey, Steph, how you doing? <laughs> All right. Sorry, what was your name? Ilias. Ilias. Nice to meet you, Ilias. Um, you want philosophy to make you money? No, I want philosophy. I want. I want. Be, I want to be basically. Well, first, let me start. Sorry, I'm, just, I, I'm just getting. I'm getting the ancient, wizened Greek cheeks of a, of a lap dancing Socrates slowly peeling off a veil, <laughs> or a robe <laughs> in my mind. So, it's a, let's just say it's a good thing we're not broadcasting video at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Shake your money maker. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, you want. So you want philosophy to help you make money. I, I I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that that's necessarily using it in the right way, but but tell me more. No, well, what I really want, um, and first I want to thank you for everything that you've done. I've uh, I've watched probably four to five hundred videos over the last two to three years. Uh, so thank you very much for everything you've done. And has it made me money? You watching my video? Yeah, it has. It has. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> of course, I uh, you know I man of my word. I uh, I donate, of course. Thank you. So. Really, what I want to do is, um, and I could go into my my uh, my little work history if you want. But I, what I want to do is, I want to bring philosophy into my work life, so that you know, I go to work, I work a lot of hours, and you know, while I enjoy what I do, I feel like I, I could do so much more. And I feel like the missing the missing factor in that is philosophy. So, um, sh should I go into my my work history? I guess a little bit. Give you some background. Well, maybe your current, you know, just generalize it, obviously. But, of course. Uh, so, what sort of business are you in? So right now I work for one of the big four accounting firms. Um, if you don't know what that is, it's just the big accounting firms that they're, they're globally known as uh, as the big four. 
Um, I'm a manager there. Um, I'm actually one of the youngest managers in in the office, so I, you know I should feel accomplished. Um, I I basically I run the operations. I do uh, I do the finance portion and I do the staffing portion of of the engagements, and I have a small team that does it with me. And it it really is enjoyable. I've been doing it for about seven years now. Uh, oh, six years actually. And and really is it really is enjoyable, but I feel like I could I could do so much more um, with my time, right? So I've been struggling with wait, sir. Do you mean with your time at work or outside of work? Outside of work. So at work, outside of work, right? At work, I've you know I'm really busy. I'm very busy, and a lot of times actually I've I work you know ten to twelve hour days sometimes, and you know it's 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 getting a little bit tiresome. And then in the future, I see myself if I continue to go in this path, I see myself working the same if not more hours and that's something i want to avoid i want i do want to start a family you know right now i'm actually in the process of buying a home and it's something i really want to want to i want to pursue something that allows me to do something valuable but also allows me to get some time to to start a family right yeah, I mean, you don't want to be working twelve hours. No, of course not. And, a day and have work on the weekends and so on. Right? Exactly. No, some for the last two months I've worked every weekend. It's been it's been pretty it's been pretty intense. And yeah, daddy, daddy is a tall ghost that passes by my bed when I'm half asleep. It's no, like, oh no, no, that's, that's never that something. Yeah, that's never something I want to do. Um, for it's, it's the old adage that uh, women women serve their families by being there and men serve their families by being away. It's like, no, break that, right? Yeah, of course. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, so I just been, I've been trying to, so first of all, I've been trying to bring philosophy into my, my workplace, maybe, maybe try to incorporate a little, you know, the odd truth and honesty. And I know I feel like my team is run, I guess in a philosophical way. And I, I probably should go into that a little bit more <laughs> to explain. Um, so the way my, I run my team is, you know, everything is honest and upfront. You know, if I forget something, I, I say, hey, guys, I forgot about this. I don't try to blame it on somebody else, which is actually very common. And, and I've seen it a lot in the past. But um, we run the we run the operation side just like that. And it's actually improved efficiency a lot. You know, just just bring just making people be take uh, responsibility for for what they're doing. That's something that people are not really used to in in most of the most of the places I've worked for at least. Um, oh yeah, like I mean, and the other thing too, which I'm sure you do, is that you know always promote the great ideas of your employees. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, like I I would bring something to the the board and say, oh, you know, so and it was so and so's idea, and I think it's really good. I'm just passing it forward and so on. And uh, that, you know, there's no better way to kill the creativity of your employees and take credit for stuff. Uh, that's sort of killing the goose that lays the golden egg. But the degree to which you can promote the good ideas of your employees uh, is uh, the degree to which you'll get more of them. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. I have an, my associate, which is the lowest level. He actually has, I think, the best ideas. He's, he's very creative. He has a lot of energy, so much energy. And we've, we've been able to, to create a lot of reports and things like that that weren't being used before. And he created it from scratch with my help. You know, I just helped him with macros. I helped him with some Excel stuff, but he—it was his idea. It was—it's been—it's been a great, you know, a great chance to bring philosophy into that world. But there's a limit to that to how much you can bring. At the end of the day, what well, do you? But hang on, do do you want to do something with philosophy in your workforce, or would you like to do something more entrepreneurial with philosophy as a whole? I really feel like I need to go entrepreneurial because I was going to get into right. that, but because there's a limit to how much philosophy you can actually bring. And yeah. 
even it's if, not, if it's not your company, then exactly. you know you've got to work within the culture that exists. But right. if it's your company, you can create the culture, right? Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what I what I was thinking, and I've, it took me seven years seven years to realize that. You know, I thought like I could work within the company and kind of with not within the company, within co- different companies, and maybe change them up and make make them kind of my own and bring in my 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 thoughts. Well, you can. You I mean you can if you want to go all the way to the top. I mean, then you still have challenges, right. but uh, it, but that can take you at least another twenty years, right? Exactly. I mean, people say, oh, why do CEOs get paid so much? It's like because they've worked 80 hours a week for 30 years, because they've traveled all over the world, because they've had no life other than their business. I mean, just just read a biography of Jack Welsh. I mean, the guy doesn't even know his kids' names, it seems like sometimes. So yeah, that's not the life it for is, me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a brutal life. And I mean, I, some people like it, and that's their preference. And I, you know, I think it's a shame. Like, why bother having kids? But um, it, is, uh, it is an incredible amount of work oh, to yeah. become a competent CEO. And of course, just just by the by as well, because companies are much bigger now than they used to be. Well, CEO pay is 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 much higher. It's a ratio of blah, 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 right. Yeah, okay, but you know, if if you improve the the earnings of a five million dollar company by ten percent, that's worth five hundred thousand dollars. And if it's a five hundred million dollar uh, company, right, then that's you know a lot more <laughs> than that, right? So of course you're going to if the companies are bigger and companies are getting bigger through a variety of status and non-status drivers companies are getting bigger so of course ceo salary is going up there are fewer people who can do that job and the value that they provide is in proportion to their pay well worth it you know ceos don't get paid uh you know in terms of the money is just subtracted from the workers salaries i mean that's just stupid marxist zero-sum thinking crap you know i mean the the uh, they, they they make for the company in general not always but in general the goal is that they make a huge amount more money for the companies and they take in salaries and so they are giving to the workers and the workers whose CEOs are paid the most in general should be the workers whose salaries are increasing the most in a free market over a long enough period of time. But there's just this weird thing like CEOs salaries are overpaid like they just go in there and, and the company vaults you know with a giant vacuum cleaner and hoover up all the dollar bills and you know grab the, the Snickers bars out of the mouths of the workers and so on. I mean it's just usual Marxist resentment stuff. I mean, those guys pay a lot, and those men and women pay a lot uh, in terms of uh, time and and all of that to be able to uh, uh, to do that stuff. And they come up with really innovative stuff. Like one of Jack Welch's, uh, he's considered to be one of the great CEOs of the last sort of generation. And one of Jack Welch's innovations in, in GE was uh, people used to get paid uh, according to how they improved relative to each other, right? So if you had a plumbing department that went up 5%, uh, in sales, and then you had an electrical department that went up 10% in sales, then the electrical guys would do a whole lot better. But what that meant was that the most talent would always try and aggregate in the areas that were growing the fastest. And of course, um, that's, you know, in some ways you want that, but in some ways you want the most talented people to go to the most problematic areas. So what he did was instead of comparing these divisions to each other, he compared them to equivalent divisions in the industry. So he was comparing apples to apples rather than apples to oranges, and that would draw the greatest talent to, in some, t- some ways, the most challenging uh, environments and, and produced a much more even turnaround situation in such a huge company as, as GE. So anyway, just sort of want to, but that's, that's a pretty cool idea. And, uh, you know, get, not, not just having the idea, but having the uh, the energy and the focus and the you know the, the, the to to really get those ideas across and make them happen and so on. It's, I mean, and and what he did with General Electric was huge in terms of his uh, the increase in productivity and so on. So 
anyway, I just sort of wanted to to point out that that you can, but it, it it's a huge sacrifice in many ways uh, to to end up in those in those kinds of positions and entrepreneurial stuff. You may not end up being quite as big, but you certainly will end up with your hand on the rudder sooner, even if it's a smaller boat. Right. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So the firms that I, the the big four firms they're, they're all partnerships. So CEO is is equal to partner basically. That's the that's the top, top rung. And um, it, even when you're a partner, you have so many other partners that you have to compete with that it's hard to make any changes that you want. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's even then it's it gets difficult for partnerships especially. Oh, you have to be more comfortable with significant conflict. Right. Um, if you want to change an existing culture rather than create your own. Yeah, right. So, you know, I, th- I think I'm, uh, so I, I can stay here for a couple more years. I, I have no problem with that as I, as I build up, you know, something that I can, that I can go on and jump off to, to do my, on my own. I would, I just wanted to see what the best, what best recommendation or best way that I can, that I can kind of use the philosophical knowledge to, to, to the best of my abilities and, uh, do something else. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I can I can sort of give you some thoughts, like if I wasn't able to do this sort of ways that I would uh, I would approach things. Right. I mean, so I have I do have some I've, I've had some ideas, you know, I, have, I do also have the naysayers all around me. That, oh, what are you doing? Leaving such a good job. What do you, you know? Are you are you stupid? Why would you ever do that? Um, and are those people much more successful than you? No, not at all. Yeah. See, that's that's <laughs> it's always a bit of a problem, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna teach you how to sing. Oh, right? It's like uh, I think that's all right. I think I'll sign up to the Freddie Mercury School of Infinite Yelling. But um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, you know, you, you take the least successful people around you and you do the opposite. They can give you wonderful advice. It's just an opposite world. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. You should st- you should stick where you are. You've got a good pension. It's like okay, so you, the guy working at Starbucks, is giving me career advice, and it's incredibly useful as long as I accept that it's the complete opposite, you know, advice from what I should do. Right. Right. So, and then, uh, so that's one of the, the barriers that I'm seeing. The other barrier I'm seeing is that whatever I want to try to start, it is just filled with government red tape. And, sure. and it's like, sure. all right, so either I stay here and deal with, uh, people's red tape, you know, the, 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 the firm's red tape or, or I leave and I deal with, you know, tons of paperwork. You know, for example, I was trying to, I was thinking about opening up a, starting starting to sell Chinese motorcycles in New York. And I'm all right, let's, let's see what it takes to do that. So, you know, I could import one or two, no problem. I could definitely get that done. But at the scale that I want it to be done, I would have to, I would probably spend a year or two just, just going through, through, through laws, getting a lawyer, paying a lawyer. And it, it would take so much effort and time and money and really is it is the, the the money that's stopping me I, i'll i'll spend the time i'll spend the i'll put the effort in it's just the time that's 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 just the money that's that's you know it's hard to, it's hard to get to start off right. something like this you have to pay the lawyers you have to pay the, the all the all the the titling and you know that kind of stuff so i'm like all right maybe i'll do i'll do um uh property stuff so actually right now i'm i'm in, I'm in the middle of buying a house um just today i put in my i put in a bid and house buying houses and renting them out are are it's pretty tough too is in new york first of all you got you know fourteen thousand dollars a year worth of taxes then you have you know you have to pay 
inspections, which you know you get paid, you you pay for it anyway. But those places prices are inflated because they're forced upon you. You have no choice. You have to pay all kinds of fees to to and taxes just to get a mortgage as well, and you have to deal with Freddie Mac or Sally Mae. It's it's all you know. It's a giant mess. I'm like, all right. So I want to bring philosophy, more philosophy into my life and world. You know, I'm gonna have, you know, everyone around me I keep because you know that all my friends are good because they're into philosophy. My my fiance is really into philosophy with me, and but I want to bring that. I want to bring philosophy into my into my work world. But it seems like everything I try to do is is stopped by by the red tape of of, of government. Well, no, no. Technically, it's stopped by you, right? Well, yeah, right. Because it could be done. Look, but. But you find someone who is going to take care of that stuff for you, right? And it's not, it's not a year or two to, to get a business incorporated and so on, right? If you're not in, I don't know, Somalia or something. But uh, um, yeah, you can uh, you just get someone who's going to handle all that stuff. You, you know, you don't have to do it all. And um, uh, f- find someone that you want to work with. I mean, I think, I think a partnership is, is hugely advantageous in entrepreneurial situations. Because you, you can both motivate each other, uh, you know, keep each other's energy going, and there is this sense of, you know, I, I don't want to set sail alone. You know, having two people is is important. And uh, if you find someone who complements your skill set, maybe there's somebody who's better. You know, maybe he's not so much of an idea hamster, but is better at just handling all of the paperwork. And that, you know, it's a very valuable and positive skill. But um, yeah, you can uh, uh, you can certainly make it work in with less time and energy it's just because of your philosophical views i assume that the red tape is even more horrible than it would be for most people it really you know is. it's like, one thing to be an average person doing taxes which you hate it's another thing to be a philosophical person doing taxes which you know brings a whole additional dantian layer of hell to the entire situation it's a horror show yeah yeah it is it is absolutely i mean it's like just reach in and pull out my kidney through my eyeball and let's call it a day right because it's it's got the moral horror rather than just the annoying inconvenience, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So get someone else to who doesn't have the, you know necessarily the same philosophical approach or is willing to just do it anyway, and make it happen that way. Right. So I mean, I'm, I've been having a lot of trouble finding that someone else. I mean, my fiance has the, the same philosophical leanings. I just she's not much of a. I don't think she would. She would thrive in that those kinds of situations where you have to deal with lawyers and all that all that kind of stuff but you're dealing with lawyers you just just pay the lawyers and do what they tell you to right right that's true and that's what you it's like you don't deal with the doctor you just go to the doctor and say i got this rash and she says you know uh you know in canada they say put these leeches on it and then you say okay i guess i'm going to the states or whatever but uh you uh you, you just do what they tell you to right i mean it's not not a lot of dealing with lawyers it's just like oh you're to do this okay <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that's true and and you don't and keep the conversations short. Right, it's important. You know, I don't want to hear about your day. <laughs> Hearing about your day is going to cost me eighty bucks. Anyway, right, right. So, yeah, I mean, so I, guess I, sh- I shouldn't be discouraged. I should I should go forward. Um, I shouldn't. But you are discouraged. You know, should or shouldn't is is sort of irrelevant. And uh, but but you you are discouraged and you you have to be if you want to be an entrepreneur and I'm sorry, you know, I really hate to be this annoying, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm sure you get this. But for other people, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to you just have to be unstoppable. 
you know, you, you have to be just like water going down a mountainside. You know, you just you find a way. Oh, there's a rock. We'll just go around it, you know, or we'll build up enough of a reservoir until we push the rock over. Like you just have to be unstoppable. And it, there is just a brute, blind, passionate willpower to being an entrepreneur. You know, just you just have like, OK, I'm going to do it. And OK, there are lawyers. OK, so what do I need to do to deal with the lawyers? Right. But if you're the kind of person who's like, oh, there's lawyers and, you know, it might take a while and, right, then that's not the right mindset. And, and I think that's too risky. I mean, there's enough risk in the entrepreneurial world without also feeling like you might fail in motivation and energy. You just, you find a way to get it done. You find a way. The very first time, that and this is way back in the day when I started programming in Windows. I had to, um, uh, and this is there was no code examples on the internet. There was barely an internet. I mean, and and the books were. I had a, a book that was terrible and and whatever, right? And there was no type ahead drop downs for your programming and all that. So and I had to I had to find a record, open a record, write a value, and close a record. And it took me nine hours. Like I just sat there and tried this and tried that. And like I, I didn't even get up to pee. It was just like nine hours of like this most ridiculously simple thing that would take me about 20 seconds now. But you just have to, um, you, you just have to will it. You just have to make it happen. And that's an annoying thing. Just do it, you know. But as far, like if, if, you're, if you want to be an entrepreneur, there's, there's enough that's going to stop you that's external to yourself. You cannot have internal things that you will accept as a valid way of, of, of stopping you. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I never really looked. That's the problem, too. So you look at other people. It's like, oh, yeah, it's inter he's internally stopping himself. To look at yourself and saying something inside of me is stopping me, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to even see that. Now that you're pointing it yeah, out. Yeah, that doesn't mean you do everything, right? I mean, right. maybe renting a house in New York is not for you. So I'm not saying like don't evaluate risk or anything like that, but you're talking about so you but you're talking about things that are more generic like well there are lawyers involved in the creation of a business and therefore what yeah okay yeah there are lawyers involved in the creation of a business I think absolutely I'm, I think I might also be paralyzed by the anal the analyzing of the risk because like you said in every in every entrepreneurial um, endeavor there's going to be risk so you know I, I come from a big four and all we do is handle risk. So I'm like, all right, let's, let's, let's see the risk. Let's see what, what can happen. I, I look at thousands of different things that can go wrong and, and then, okay, so add that to all the things of red tape and things like that. I'm like, holy crap, what am I going to do? No, but if, you see, but if knowing that, <laughs> how can I put this? It's, it's a marathon and to win the marathon, all you have to do is keep running. Right. If, if you're the kind of person who is just going to get things done no matter what, then you are already leagues ahead of 999 out of 1,000 people, right? So you have hugely diminished your risk. Assuming that you're in a business model that people want at some level and care about and are willing to pay money for, you just keep going, right? It's a... A song from the Black Eyed Peas, but the but the race is not for the swift, but for who can endure it. And that's you. You just have to be the kind of person who you just keep going. 
you just keep going. It doesn't mean you don't change course. It doesn't mean you don't look around you. It doesn't mean you don't, don't take feedback, but you just keep going. Yeah, there, there are times when this show's been a drag. You just keep going. There's that old thing, 90% of success is just showing up. And you just keep going. You know, if think of all the people who start out wanting to become comedians, right? And it certainly is true that when you have success, you want to keep going. But there's times in every comedian's life, I think, where they don't want to keep going. And that's the choice that you have to make. You just have to be the person who finds a way and who keeps going. And that is the biggest way that you can diminish your risk. Because by being that person, you have enormously diminished your competition. I think I start, I'm starting to see that now, actually. So I also started a YouTube channel just so I can spread the word of philosophy on a motorcycle. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, it's only got eight subscribers. I only started it two months ago. But, you know, I'm, I'm relentless with that. I'm just, I just keep on pumping out videos until people start listening to me. Yeah, and you just, you, just, you just keep going until you get better. And as you get better, you continue, right? I mean, yeah, I started off with, with nothing and, and uh, no, <laughs> no views and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you, just, you just have to keep going. And um, I, you know, I wish there was a, an easier way, but there isn't. And, of course, society puts a lot of things in your way. And there are too many things in the way of entrepreneurs at the moment, for sure. Uh, but, um, but, but what that means is that if you are the person who breaks through that, then you are already way ahead of your competition to the point where you almost can't be competed with. I think that's sound advice. So find someone who can, if the barriers are completely distasteful to you, and if they're morally reprehensible for you to get involved in, sure, okay, but then find someone who can handle that for you. You know, if maybe they won't be a partner, maybe there'll be someone you just pay. But uh, find someone who can allow you to focus on maximizing your value, right? I mean, it's the division of labor, right? Michael Jordan doesn't do his own typing, right? <laughs> I mean, it just wouldn't make any sense, right? And so, um, you know, f find whatever it is that adds the most value that you can bring to the table and then try and outsource absolutely every, everything else, right? I mean, Brad Pitt doesn't work the camera too, right? That's true. Yeah, that was it. That's just what I wanted to ask. I think that's uh, what I needed to hear. All right. Yeah. So keep your eyes out for the right person. And, um, you know, maybe there's someone that you already know, or maybe you have to sort of put the word out there. And, um, you know, there may be entrepreneurial groups around where you are that can find it, wherein you can find someone who's going to be better at this sort of stuff than you are. But, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of won't get stopped means also won't get stopped until I find someone who can, who I can work with. Right. Right. All right. Thanks a lot, Steph. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. You keep too. us posted. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, well, up next is Stephen. Stephen wrote in and said, where do Christianity and philosophy intersect? What goals and principles do we have in common, and how might we relate to each other in a way that is mutually beneficial? I think this question originated out of the uh, An Atheist Apologize to Christians podcast. In a second, I'm just seeing a lot of lasers on my body at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Atheist snipers! <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah yeah well uh go ahead what uh, what do you think well before i go into that i just wanted to, to thank you for that video you posted 
the um the apology to Christians. I didn't feel like you had to apologize, but the things you said made me feel like really warm and fuzzy towards the whole idea of 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 Christians and uh, philosophers in in FDR just coming together. We have so many things in common that I thought it was such a, a fruitful speech you gave, and I know you must have had backlash for that from backlash. Yeah. Backlash. I don't know, Mike. Did we get any the, backlash? The at least nobody canceled. At least nobody canceled their subscriptions to the show. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the most important thing. That's just been. Oh, I think we got fantastic. a couple of those from uh, from that show. Yeah, <laughs> from, just a couple. Just a couple. Just a couple. Yeah, and and no, I I get it. I mean, you know, I guess for some people uh, to say any good things about um, religion uh, is you know tantamount to uh, cozying up having a child with satan or something like that but uh, <laughs> i gotta i gotta go with the data and you know i hate to say i have to follow my heart because that's not exactly a philosophical thing but i've always wanted to be honest about where i am emotionally as well as intellectually and uh in, in reading uh the degree to which uh, i think very positive values were put forward by a religion uh is uh and i you know, tried to explain it well but yeah i mean that was uh, certainly quite uh, a defection of people who found it uh, entirely unacceptable to find even a shred of positive uh, aspects to religion and you know i'm i'm sorry that that people decided to cancel their subscriptions and and stop supporting the show and all that that's obviously their choice and uh, i actually think that's probably for the best uh, <laughs> you know i mean i i don't want to take people's money who if themselves are are challenged you know just take take their ball and go home <laughs> right i mean again it's challenging for uh, atheists to hear anything positive about religion but um uh the number of people who are religious who find positive stuff in in my show uh, is important the number of people who are uh, who've been uh, a number of religious people even who've been positively influenced by some an atheist like uh, like ayn rand or uh you know they 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 also uh, have been able to find positive things in atheism and uh, I feel that the compliment uh, can be honorably reversed. So, yeah, the people who are like, oh, you said something even remotely positive about religion as a mechanism for transmitting values that are helpful to children and families. I'm taking my money. I'm going home. It's like, well, you know, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I really do. Uh, every now and then you need to uh, clean house, right? But uh, anyway, that's sort of neither here nor there at the moment. Yeah. So when I was thinking about it, what where do they intersect and what goals do we have in common i realize that we the most striking thing that that comes to me is that we have a, a common enemy which is and and um so let me clarify i'm talking about the christians that i associate with and that i read and look up to and so forth which i know does not represent the whole of christianity but i'm talking about sort of the philosophically minded um more reasonable people in the faith when I when I say Christians, so I'm fully aware that there are Christians who are very anti-rational, very um, hostile to atheists, and so on. And can I can I tell you a secret? Yeah, go on. <laughs> I'm sure that no Christians know this, but there are actually some atheists who are quite anti-rational. <laughs> yeah, we have we have no idea because all the atheists are always talking about <laughs> rationality, and we're just we're, we just take them on their word. So. Yeah, I mean, I, one day I'm going to meet an atheist who's pro-state. I mean, I feel that day is imminent. <laughs> um, so <laughs> they have their religion called statheism. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's um, yeah, I mean, atheism does not have any kind of monopoly on um, 
on rationality as a whole. And I've had lots of conversations with atheists who are even right of center and talking about voluntarism and anarchism and so on. And, you know, they, they are, they have exactly the same short circuits as fundamentalist uh, religious people hitting arguments about atheism. So, um, yeah, it is, uh, I'm with you there. It's, uh, it's easy to idealize a community based upon looking at one, you know, one aspect of them, you know, yeah, this earlobe is really hot. I bet you the rest of the woman is ah, <laughs> you know, it's Dave Edna or something. But anyway, yeah. So, so when I when I say Christians, I just mean that whole caveat. But I, I think we have a common enemy, and the common enemy is sort of the um, the sophist or the liberal sophist. It, that's the form it takes in our age. The people who kind of want to shut the conversation down, and like I said, I know there are plenty of Christians who do this, but I find that the Christians that I listen to and and associate with they have much of the same desires and wants and wishes as as uh, we here at FDR and and I think that's something we could we could um unite on I don't know in, in what capacity I wouldn't think a formal capacity but we have this this shared goal of of opposing the people who want to shut the conversation down and obscure truth and and just fight with the sword rather than with words and I, well, I think we yeah, have that. I, I think yeah, there there is a um, there is a hysteria in public discourse these days, where the offense bomb grenade gets pulled and everyone runs away. Yeah, <laughs> and I I think that's that's a real shame. And the thing is, of course, that that Christianity, as as all religions uh, have had at various points, and some some even current. Uh, Christianity has had times where, you know, contrary opinions result in in significant negative repercussions. Um, but it's been quite a while since that's been the case with Christianity. And now, uh, you know, the, this, this you know, what the leftists mock uh, and so on, like this sort of war on, on Christianity. Uh, I actually, I think that there's, there's actually quite a bit of validity to that. I think that uh, Christian values are regularly scorned and mocked uh, in the mainstream media. And um, I, I think that's that's a shame. Because, you know, it's the old thing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm certainly not a believer in a deity, but that doesn't mean that I have nothing in common with people who believe in deities, right? Yeah. And I- uh, there, are, there are values in the Christian world that I find far more um, compatible with my own. I, I really am a big fan of Ann Coulter, and she is religious. And uh, I find it fascinating. I remember I was reading one of her books and she came, started coming up with criticisms of evolution. And I thought, oh, come on, you know. <laughs> but then I'm like, oh, uh, listen to what she's got to say, right? And, and she put forward the arguments criticizing evolution. And um, as I've said before on this show, you know, it's, they're not bad. <laughs> you know, they're not bad arguments. And, uh, it, you know, I've, I've listened to uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, the, the, the Greatest Show on Earth, and there's some strong evidence for it's important to read the the criticisms against. Uh, the, you know, there's this thing that that I think I don't know. You you probably know more more Christians than I, than I do, but mm-hmm. um, this this capacity to to hold an alternate position in your mind is really, I think, one of the definitions of what it is to be intelligent. You, can you argue a contrary position? Uh, can you can you accept the validity of a contrary position, even if you don't accept all the conclusions, like can you accept that there's a strong case to be made, even if you can find holes in it? 
Right. And the the capacity, and, and this is you know, back to sort of the Walter Scott video that also bothered some people, right? The fact that I can argue uh, a case within a status paradigm does not mean that I am accepting a status paradigm. It's just it's a mark of intelligence to be able to play devil's advocate, to be able to go into another mindset uh, and uh, argue from that position. doesn't mean, I said very clearly in the video, I certainly don't accept all of this, but this is the way that the system works. And uh, I think that aspect of things is not is not part of contemporaneous dialogue. Uh, that there is just this massive idiot scream down of people. You know, this is offensive, this is horrendous, this is wrong, this is, right? And uh, it, it is um, it is a, a really chilling betrayal of the great lesson learned from the religious warfares that were going on in Europe uh, in the later Middle Ages, early into the Renaissance. It is the lesson that we have tragically lost, which is the best cure for bad speech is not no speech, but more speech. But this this idea that you just scream that you're offended and you chant stupid ass slogans and you boycott people and you know I like I think Ann Coulter tried to give a speech in Ottawa and and they they couldn't guarantee her safety, you know and and I went to a men's rights conference to give a speech last summer and we had to brave bomb threats and death threats and all this kind of stuff and that is just appalling. It's appalling that we are after two thousand five hundred years of Western intellectual civilization that we are at the space where you just get screamed down and shouted down and and uh, you know just just get horrible names thrown at you and nobody engages you in anything of substance they just try and dig up dirt and you know just smear and I mean it's just it's really tragic and um, it is uh, you know whether it's at a tipping point where people are just afraid to talk about anything of substance I don't know as yet but it is. Um, uh, it is just terrible. Yeah, I mean, Warren Farrell, when he tried to give a speech in Toronto, people just scream him down. And the, this, But this kept, capitulation goes back to the 60s uh, when you had uh, radicals on campuses uh, who were able to shut down campuses, and there was just this loss of resolution, a loss of nerve. But when you scream down opposing viewpoints, it's because you can't answer them. I mean, this is, it's, it's a complete confession of uh, intellectual sterility, infertility and lack of confidence. You, you have to scream people down because they're making more sense. You're really screaming your own doubts down. It's nothing to do with. But this idea that it is somehow valid to uh, scream people down and, uh, you know, in, in, in places in Europe and, and, and other places, you know, you, you can't talk about certain topics. You, you could actually risk going to jail. And the idea that this is somehow what should be the case uh, is, is so counter to at least the last 400 years of, of what has been so bitterly fought for in the West. And, and, you know, Christians had a lot to do with that. And Christians, of course, had a lot to do with the end of, of slavery, which was pointed out to me by a Christian. And I, you know, looked into it and, you know, lo and behold, uh, the Christian faith was a very, a very powerful driver to the, uh, the end of uh, and a slave. Can I just and mention these something? Are things, these are not things to just be sort of brushed aside. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, can I just mention something about what you said before? Because I, I don't want to forget. <laughs> um, you said that these names that get flung around, uh, Christians are, are really experience, experiencing this a lot on the same-sex marriage issue. And I wish people would just listen more because I think what people are, are perceiving as homophobia and bigotry is really a... a 
a, a desperate defensiveness. At least this is what I see from the Christians that I listen to. When we have these these acts in Louisiana, was it? No, it was Indiana. The Christians feel like they need something to protect themselves from the state, which is going to force them to participate in something that compromises their conscience. And they don't particularly care that a gay wedding has a cake made. They just don't want to be part of it. And they feel bullied into this. And, and for that, they get, and they, are. they get called bigots and homophobes. And, and that's all fine. I don't think we Christians, we, we expect to be called names. But what sucks is that we, we actually are being bullied. We have the arm of the state against us on this. There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that forcing someone to act against his or her values where there's no initiation of the use of force is wrong. It's absolutely morally wrong. And the fact that, uh, that, that we would have a society wherein a Christian would be forced to participate in a, a marriage ceremony that went against those Christians' belief systems I mean, it's 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 unbelievably wrong, and we know that that's wrong. I mean, we just we simply know that that's wrong. In the same way that if you were to go to a gay printer and ask him to to print something that was offensive to his sensibilities, he would he would have the perfect right to say no, because we we have these debates using our words, right? We proselytize. Yeah. We do we do not convert by the sword. And what's going on with the state now is everybody is trying to convert by the sword, and we are back to the religious warfare. Uh, or the warfare of gaining control of the state power that was supposed to be the big lesson we learned from religious warfare in Europe. Uh, and and this this not having the willingness, or, or it's probably even not even having the ability to to have a debate. I mean, I did this thing on, on gay marriage a while back where it was just like, God, just gay people can be very funny just make fun of them if you want right but just <laughs> yeah. threats and stuff like that is yeah. is like don't don't do it and i think you know there's an old idea that that i think has some validity i don't know if it's been entirely proved and mike if you can dig up anything on this it'd be great but i think that the lower the verbal ability the more likely people are to resort to force i think and that I makes th- that th- makes pretty intuitive sense What's what we say to to kids? Don't use your fists. Use your words, right? Use your words, you know. And and it's called acting out in terms of physical aggression because you 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 can't negotiate. You can't get your feelings out in words. You can't speak. Uh, you can't convince, and so you have to aggress uh, to get what you want. Yeah, and, and it's weird too because it's not like they don't have any arguments. Christians, for the most part, are happy to debate the validity of Christianity. And there are plenty of atheist arguments for them to use, so I don't know why they feel the need to, to do this um, bullying tactic. Well, I mean, it, it's one of these ironic and, and gruesome things that basically it's become a witch hunt. Oh, yeah. And what, what's happened now is, is there's a, a, um, a people who have low verbal skills. And and I find this to to be the case that people with low verbal skills get drawn to leaders who give them permission to be aggressive. And you know what is the cause of these low verbal skills? Well, it's a variety of things: it's bad schools, too much television, too much compu- too many computer games, and and all of that. Because uh, you know, in computer games, it's usually domination. It's not you know, you shoot the guy with the rocket or you don't, or there's not, you know, there are some games that are more negotiation based and so on, but 
but there's a lot of uh, this sort of win-lose stuff and, and thumb mashing and stuff. So people are getting, the kids are getting a whole lot of not negotiation in, in their childhood. You know, one of the biggest predictors of empathy, as I've measured before, as I mentioned before, sorry, one of the biggest predictors of empathy, empathy or something that grows empathy is unstructured play for children, right? You just, they go out and they figure out what they're going to do because you have to negotiate with everyone. You have to try and find a way that the game pleases everyone and you have to take turns and you learn how to negotiate. And even though kids are much safer now, there's this general terror of kids being left alone. <gasps> they're unsupervised or whatever. You've got to take them to Chuck E. Cheese where everything's structured. You've got to take them to laser tag where yeah, everything's structured. The stranger danger. You don't just say... Yeah, you don't just say, as I was so told as a kid, you know, you, you get up, you have some breakfast, you go out, and you come back when the streetlights go out. You don't have any money, you just go find your other kids and you, you go find something to do. And so there's been this loss of um, a verbal acuity and negotiation skills. And um, that is, a, I think that's really, really tragic. Now, again, I want to recognize, of course, at the beginning, I'm saying that violence is going down but i don't think the violence is necessarily going down because uh, verbal skills or abilities are going up and um so we got to something here in the case of hannibal lecter the psychopathic killer was framed as an individual with superior intelligence an omnibus intelligence that enhanced his ability to manipulate and victimize others contrary to this popular conception and based upon data from 840 cases selected from the macarthur violence risk assessment study mathematical models have shown an inverse relationship between verbal intelligence and psychopathy for eight of 12 items of the disorder on the scale. So um, psychopathy goes down as verbal intelligence goes up. That's, and, that's uh, very different from what you see in, in media, right? Yeah, the psychopath is generally considered to be this verbally fluid guy. Yeah, and he's all this just kind like stuff, really but, smart, cutting guy. Well, but those <laughs> politicians who are that way inclined, we tend to see a, a lot of them and so on, but uh, those of, I think those are the exception to the general to the general trend. That's very interesting. I've actually never heard that. And so the the more you promote language skills, uh, the the more you promote negotiation as opposed to coercion. So what I view with um with the people who want to run to the state and and get weapons and and force people to do stuff, they they simply do not have the ability or the desire or the willingness or the intelligence to make their case. Uh, the confidence it takes it takes confidence to make a case and uh, rather than force people and it is really of course the essence of civilization right i mean were they were they hit as children uh, were they negotiated with as children you know my daughter is an, <laughs> an expert negotiator i mean she she's going to grow up to be a you know one of these barkers who sells uh, cattle at you know 400 <laughs> uh, syllables per second uh, she's an expert negotiator and uh, so you know why why would she ever need to get aggressive uh, whiny, yes, but she gets that from me. But um, so, so I think that that you know, Christianity, uh, there is, I think, still a desire to make a case. You know, as and I don't know the degree to which this is true. I've read this. I haven't read it in, in sort of studied it in great detail. Mm -hmm. But uh, Christians sent missionaries, not armies, in general. Right? There was a goal to spread the word by through language rather than through yeah, and coercion. and that was in. That was in Paul's letters as well. What he did was he went to the marketplace and he talked with the, the local philosophers and he made the case for, for Christianity. And I think that's the model we should follow. And, and I'm sort of glad that Christianity is becoming more on the fringe these days because it's forced us to actually have to 
think more again, because I think we lost that for a little bit. But now Christianity is not taken as seriously. So Christians, there's a real a real call in the Christian community to to learn about the opposing arguments, to learn about what atheists say in, in very, very sharp detail, too. It's not just this um, superficial surveying of atheist positions, but we really try to go into this and we want to be able to give good answers. And I think that's a really, really cool thing. And I wish I sort of wish everyone was in that position. So then we would all know each other's um, each other's views and not be kicking over straw men all the time. Yeah, I, I think because there's there's to me there's two, and and this I think is is fairly commonplace knowledge within the Christian community. But to me there is there are two approaches or purposes of of Christianity, and it it, it really f- centers around the question of good works, mm-hmm. right? So is is an a, is a moral atheist more likely to get into heaven than a dissolute Christian? And there are, of course, two fundamental schools of thought in this. And, and one is that, no, it doesn't matter how good you are if you haven't accepted Jesus, if you, you don't confess, and if you don't go through these, right? It doesn't matter. You, so- Socrates goes to hell, so to speak, right? And there's another one which says that it is the quality of your deeds, you know, by, by their deeds shall they be known, that God will look not at allegiance, but God will look at the quality of the deeds that you have performed in, in your life. Now, with regards to the former, I have obviously some, I, I, you know, this challenges of like, to take an extreme example, you know, Charles Manson confesses his sins and gets to heaven, right? Uh, that's, you know, that that's a little tough to take. Uh, and Socrates going to hell is, is a little tough to take. So, and, and this is the tradition I was raised in, which is that, you know, faith is well and good, but by your deeds shall ye be known. And by your deeds shall ye be judged. And God hates the outward show of devotion without a commitment to good works. That was sort of how I was uh, raised. I think that's, Sorry, you that, that's very true, especially of Jesus. Jesus, he got mad at a lot of things, but the thing he got mad most at were the religious hypocrites, and he really, they really aggravated him <laughs> to have this, um, yes. this false outward display of religion without, without actually getting the moral virtues just it really frustrated him right yeah because because if you can confess your sins and go to heaven then and this is more a little bit more on the catholic side or at least the catholic side of indulgences that martin luther was criticizing in the uh uh in the um 15th century but it is the idea that you can be a complete bastard and then get a big giant mulligan at the end right because you can, you know, weep and wail and gnash and confess your sins and so on. In which case, if there's a get-out-of-jail-free card at the end, that is not encouraging or promoting good works during the lifetime, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, free lungs at the end of your life, or, you know, free lungs when you get old, so why not be a smoker, right? Because you get to be healed. Whereas if, if uh, salvation is really the accumulation of moral deeds that you do during your life, then that to me is is certainly more more compatible with with what I talk about. Uh, I I certainly never like the idea of you know just oh at the end you can get your salvation and all of that. You know there's this this terrifying scene in in Hamlet where Polonius is praying. Sorry if you haven't 
I'm not going to apologize for spoilers <laughs> on a 400 year old play. But, um, no, I haven't yeah, seen Hamlet, the yet. Yeah, Hamlet is is uh, going to go and uh, uh, kill Polonius, but Polonius is praying. Oh, yeah. And even though even though Polonius oh, yeah. is um, uh, is uh, is a murderer. Uh, according to Hamlet's ghosts, right? I mean, Hamlet's father comes in. No, Polonius, his uncle, is a murderer. And uh, no, it's not Polonius. Polonius is. Um, I think you're right. I think it is Polonius. Oh wait. Um, no, no, Polonius is the. Oh, I can't believe. Yeah, I Polonius made this was the crazy, like, bumbling uncle, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. Yeah, the uncle. he was like. He's a, the guy who has this weird wisdom. That's right. Um, yeah, he, he's the father of um, Ophelia. That's right. Laertes and Ophelia. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Let me just. About. I just forgot which character. It I'm is. gonna. I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna find it. Um, let me just because it's it's a fantastic speech and it's something that that really struck me when I read it as a as a teenager. Um, let me just. Um... But while you're doing that, I just want to make it clear that, at least in Orthodox Christianity, we we do we don't base salvation on works, but neither do we necessarily think that you could be. A terrible guy, and then at the end of the day, be like, "Haha, God, now I repent." And God is like, "Drat, you got me. You're in heaven." Yeah, fine print. Ah, uh, here we go. Claudius. Yeah, Polonius is the uh, neither a borrower nor a lender be, and so on, right? All right. Yes. Okay. I'll just let me just give you the and and this this is I think it's it's really uh it's really important. Oh, was it Polonius? It was no Claudius. Oh, Claudius. Claudius has become the king by murdering. Okay, so the uncle Hamlet's right. father. It's basically, uh, it's a play, but also it seems to be a Spanish soap opera. But um, <laughs> we just, I'm just trying to find the uh, right. Okay, so he wants to go. He wants. He wants to go, and uh, Hamlet comes in and he wants to kill him. And he says, "Now might I do it, Pat? Now he is praying, and now I'll do it. Now I'll kill him, right, for killing my father. Now and now I'll do it. Ah, and so he goes to heaven, and so I am revenged." That would be scanned. That means that, like, let's think about this. A villain kills my father, and for that, I, his sole son, do this same villain send to heaven? Oh, this is higher in salary, not revenge. He would pay me to do this, right? He took my father grossly, full of bread, with all his crimes broad-blown as flush as may. In other words, my dad was a not a great guy, and... Claudius killed him when he was deep in sin and without any confession. He says, uh, he took my father grossly full of bread with all his crimes, broad blown as flush as may, and how his audit stands, who knows, save heaven. I don't know. <laughs> did he go to heaven or did he go to hell? I don't know. But in our circumstance and course of thought, tis heavy with him. And am I then revenged to take him in the purging of his soul when he is fit and seasoned for his passage? No! He's going to go straight to heaven if I kill him. And he says, no, up sword. And know thou a more horrid hent when he is drunk, asleep, or in his rage, or in the incestuous pleasure of his bed, at gaming, swearing, or about some act that has no relish of salvation in it. Then trip him that his heels may kick at heaven, and that his soul may be damned and black as hell whereto it goes. My mother stays. This physic prolongs thy sickly days and he's like so then he leaves and then king claudius gets up and says oh, my words fly up my thoughts remain below words without thoughts never to heaven go so he wasn't even 
praying well. He could have, anyways, just one of these ironies. But I just, you know, like, like the murderer will go to heaven if he's praying and I kill him. That's good. And I remember reading that when I was a kid and just like, ew, <laughs> you know, that's gross. Yeah. That can't be right. And it's sort of unintentionally hilarious too. Like it's kind of, it's kind of funny. The, um, the idea, <laughs> the idea like, oh no, I can't kill him now. He just prayed. Yeah, or like um, the opposite could happen. He paid pay me to do this, right? I, I pray and then I I accidentally sin and now I die and I didn't have a chance to to pray about that one. I'm going to hell now. It's a little stressful. Yeah. No, it really you know it really makes you watch your way on the stairs down from the whorehouse. You know, don't trip, <laughs> don't trip. Get to a priest, right? And and so on. <laughs> and um, so so if you know if and this is to me we sort of start the conversation what is where the levels or lines of compatibility the lines of compatibility is that to the degree to which Christians focus on good works we are compatible right the degree to which you know good works are universal values and and virtues and so on and and you know a lot of the virtues that that Christians would would uh, favor I would favor as well and if the focus is on good works then I would say that Christianity and philosophy have a lot in common. And there's a lots of Christians who, you know, I think all the way back to Augustine and so on, who use specifically philosophical arguments to establish God and to establish virtue and, and, and so on. And so if, if the focus in, in religion is upon good works, then I think that there's a, a fair degree of compatibility. But if the focus on religion is, um, you know, salvation and... Uh, and and works don't get you into heaven. Only the priest can grant you that access. Uh, then I think there's less compatibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I sort of feel like there's three guys in a room. There's the um, the Christian, the uh, the philosopher, and then the uh, liberal sophist leftist dude. And and the Christian and the philosopher, well, they have a beef over God's existence, and they kind of want to settle that. But there's this other guy in the room who's just trying to shut the whole conversation down. He's just being incredibly loud and obnoxious and flinging stuff, the other two. And I feel like, well, the Christian and the philosopher just want to make that guy go away, and then we could talk it out and may the best arguments win, but there's this other guy. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, no, it does. Let me just also give this a uh, little bit of research. Research has consistently shown that offenders are more likely, criminal offenders, are more likely to score lower on measures of verbal IQ than on measures of performance IQ. Explanations for this pattern are in short supply, but the association likely has to do with deficits in the language centers of the brain, specifically Wernicke's and Broca's areas that are indirectly assessed by the IQ test, and also uh, child abuse. Child maltreatment increases the odds of having a verbal disability by 300%. So, um, so, uh, so I just really want to circle back and say that the degree to which language is enhanced is the degree to which criminality is decreased and of course uh, you know christianity is great for language i mean you you don't you know there's no sermon delivered by xbox or tablet right you you go and you listen and you debate and you read and you converse uh, and uh, from that standpoint i'm, I'm grateful uh, to have a childhood that had religious elements because it was re- i mean there were no philosophers around so it was the the deepest i got into existence and virtue and ideas and um from that standpoint i think it was it was very important and i you know if i'm trying to think this is sort of more of an extreme case but i've had a, a, a communists as neighbors and i've had christians as neighbors and who do you think i had 
a better time. <laughs> well, of course, the Christian. Yeah. The communist. I mean, <laughs> communist neighbors. I mean, oh my God. They're assholes. I'm sorry to say it, but they really, they were just obnoxious and superior and contemptuous and know-it-alls. And, you know, anytime you disagreed with them, I mean, you were just a slave of bourgeois. And they also had this thing called false consciousness, which is really annoying. Because false is consciousness is like the no-null hypothesis. So false consciousness is... I'm a worker and I don't feel exploited. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have this job. I see the boss is working here 12 hours a day. I get to go home oh, after my so seven like, and a half a, hours. But that, they're going to say, oh, you're internalizing your oppression. It's false consciousness. Right. You see, we have a theory that says you're oppressed. And if you don't feel oppressed, you're wrong. <laughs> it's like, I mean, try that at the dating. I have this theory, young lady, that you'd like to go out with me. And if you don't find me attractive, well, you're wrong, and I'm going to inflict my theory on you anyway. I think that's called kidnapping. Well, that's what, that's, I mean, that's what the terrible. feminists do to uh, to all the women who oppose feminism, like Karen Strawn. They'll just say, oh, you've internalized your misogyny, which is just incredibly condescending. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, it, it, it takes a feminist to tell a woman that everything she thinks and feels is wrong and consider that she's pro-woman. I mean, that, that, that kind of stuff just it, it takes a, a certain amount of hubris. Uh, and um, where, whereas I've not, I've almost never, and I'm trying to think, never really experienced that level of know-it-all contempt, uh, and and all of that from from Christians. Um, there's there's no virtue called humility in communism, right? I mean, that's the central planning thing, right there. We legitimately, from our from our worldview, we legitimately want and need to convince you. We can't force you because that's that doesn't work you can't force someone to believe so like whereas communism they they could pull it off just forcing people blowing people around but um christians we we can't we don't have that option that's not it's just a contradiction no and you can't just make up something called false consciousness and say to atheists you do believe in god you just don't know that you believe in god so they're right i mean that's that's generally what goes on it's false consciousness you may not feel oppressed but you are so there right we get the guns Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I think that the devotion to um, spreading the um, the thoughts by the tongue rather than by the sword, great, you know, um, uh, and uh, uh, the the focus on, you know, there's an old story of, of conversion, I think it was either in Ireland or in Scotland, and, and forgive me if I, it doesn't hugely matter, it was some uncivilized place. Oh! Just <laughs> but... What happened was, so there, there were these um, basically druids, uh, and, and they didn't really have a huge amount of, of religion. And when the Christians came, this is way back, this is like the 3rd or 4th century AD, and when the Christians came, the Christian uh, priests came, missionaries, they talked to the village elders, and the village elders listened, and... Uh, and one of them said, after he, they, they told the good news, right, the, the Christians, and one of them said, for us, life is like a bird flying through a house. It flies in through one window and out the other window, and the life that we have where we are alive is just like the bird flying through the house. We've never really thought that much about what comes before, and we certainly never really have thought that much about what comes after. But what you're saying is that there's a world outside of the house, and that this brief time of flying through a house is our life, and it's a tiny, tiny slice in the life of the bird, but we think that's all there is. Now, what a beautiful metaphor. 
I mean, I'm not doing it justice, but it, it's a completely lovely way of framing the debate about uh, eternity and, and so on. And to me, it's about thinking about more than the immediate. You know, because that could sort of be our everyday. It's the bird flying through a house. No continuity, no forethought, no long-term planning. And that's an example. I didn't sort of get, they didn't sort of ISIS style, you know, say to these guys, convert or die, you know? I mean, they, they went and laid out a well-thought-out metaphorical case. I think that's just sort of an example that comes with the creativity that you speak of when force is removed from the equation. And sure, Christians have tried to force people to believe. I think that was a ridiculous move. I don't even think that makes sense. But when you take force out, then yeah, you got to do a lot of convincing. You got to you got to get creative. And I think Christians, we really feel like we really need to do that. Like that's that's what Jesus tells us to do. He tells us to go and make disciples, and we can't do that with the sword. We have to do it with words. Right. So yeah. So I think you know the focus on good works. I think is is the key, and um, the degree to which Christians focus on that. I think that is uh, that is important, and and you know the other thing too is that I hate this phrase. The older I get, like it doesn't prove anything, but nonetheless, I'll say it that the older I get, the more I realize how deeply my roots go down into the Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian Judeo-Christian tradition. You know, I mean, there's that old saying that you know, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Oh yeah, and um, I think that was Newton who said that. And I thought it was Justin Bieber. <laughs> Giant rappers, I think he said. But um, yeah, don't go, don't cry, don't go back to Argentina. I think they have an arrest warrant happening now. But um, so the degree to which I am, you know, like a snowflake on top of the iceberg of prior thought is becoming more and more evident to me. Uh, and um, how much I, I've I've been thinking about my childhood and because people you know I always get this question like what are your influences or how did you become the way that you and I, it's it's not an unimportant question it's not determinism or anything but I mean I'm, I've sort of been thinking back to the the early days and and of my childhood and and the ideas that I was exposed to and the conversations that I was exposed to and you know when I was in um, a boarding school uh, we I sang in the choir uh, we were in church a couple of times a week and uh, there was quite an emphasis on the quality of your character uh, religion was um, something that you used to to not not this sounds like I'm not describing it well but it was I got the sense I can say what it was but I got the sense that religion was something that you used to remind yourself to develop sterling qualities of your character, to develop uh, courage uh, in the face of immorality, uh, to have integrity, to have a uniquely British virtue called common sense, to be sensible, <laughs> um, which is to not be hysterical and not to chant mindless slogans and scream at people who disagree with you and have all of that stuff, which would be mortifying to a British person. It would be, I mean, <laughs> the social sin of uh, uh, extravagant Italian-style caterwauling emotion, uh, which is the opposite of, I think, recent intellectual debate. It's not like I don't sometimes go on my rants and all of that, but those are uh, <laughs> for entertainment as, as much as anything else. But the, the sort of sober, sensible, courageous qualities that were inculcated through religion uh, in me when I was very young were uh, I sort of as I get older 
uh, I recognized the, the formative influences that, that they had on me. And if I had grown up without religion uh, at all, it's hard to imagine that those values would have become embedded in me to the degree that they have, because I certainly haven't seen them in any secular context to the same degree. Yeah, and I'm really glad that there are atheists who are like you, because <laughs> that sounds weird, but it's like every atheist is is like a leftist liberal, except for you and a few other people I can name. And I really think we need to um, unite on this front to get rid of the people who are trying to shut the convo down and just like before we could settle the issue of does God exist, we need to be able to actually have the conversation. There are people who don't even want to be able to talk about truth anymore. No, and I think I think that's that's an excellent point. I we need to get the rabble out of the arena so we can have an intelligent discussion about these things. Mm-hmm. And um, the the rabble in the arena tend to be the leftists. You know, I'm, I you know I I still say this stuff with you know some their leftists tend to hit their kids less, and fundamentalists uh, of all stripes tend to hit their kids more. Corporal punishment is more common in fundamentalist yeah. households, and so. It, it, it's a challenge because whenever I sort of beg on the left, people are like, they immediately want to put me on the right, you know, because this bichromatic rainbow of human thought apparently is all there is. But I would be, um, uh, I'm willing to take my chances with debates with Christians a lot more than facing some screaming, rock-throwing mob of leftist lunatics. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's much more civilized. It's much more civilized to do that. All right, Stefan. Well, thanks very much for calling in. It's a great, uh, great set of questions, and uh, I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that uh, that topic. It's very. And I, I appreciate uh, your openness. Uh, it's it's a very bold and courageous move because I I know you did lose some subscribers, and and I think it, it's it's so admirable that you're willing to lose subscribers over saying what's on your mind because you could easily just not even have touched on that, and you would have had a few more dollars in your pocket. So I really respect that. Well, and um, in particular, I think it, it was difficult for people because it was not just dry and abstract, but I felt very strongly about it too. Right. And I think that's, and feel very strongly about it. And I think that's another thing that's, that's hard for people. But I, you know, I, 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 the last thing I want, and I'm not, don't pull these moves out of any kind of strategy. Right. But the last thing that I want is for this place to come some, some sort of echo chamber. My beliefs are challenged. And my perspectives are challenged through the work that I do, through conversations with people, through the research that we do. So I, I, I don't want people to come to this show or to this conversation and expect that nothing will ever be challenging for them. Does that make any sense? Like that nothing's going to be like, whoa, you know, where's yeah. that coming from? Or, you know, like yeah. that to me would be the opposite of, of philosophy. Sci- scientists should always have that sense of wonder and curiosity right that that people talk about and and that i think is is one of the great joys of life and the fact that people are surprised by a perspective that has some i I thought had i had some great data behind it i had some great arguments behind it i had the analogy of it's better to have the wrong diagnosis but the right prescription than the right diagnosis but the wrong prescription, which I thought was a very good way of tying it all together. I thought it was a pretty good argument. You know, was it some sort of syllogistical 100% proof? No, but it was, I think, a really good argument backed by some really great uh, and important data and uh, ties into, you know, the concern for the family that I've had from the very beginning. And so for me, if people find that a good argument with good data unbearable, 
uh, and and want to exit the conversation, you know, I think it's a shame. I think that they're missing out on the opportunity uh, to to challenge and grow. But if if that is the fragility of where they're coming from, it's not a great place for them to be anyway. So I appreciate that. But and it's uh, really strange too because they could stomach atheism, they could stomach anarchism, they could stomach peaceful parenting, but there's always that one button that that people can't stomach, and it's weird that what it turns out to be in some instances. Well, you know, if it's anyone's, if, if, if it's any, if it's to anyone's consolation, uh, I was, <laughs> I was appalled by the thoughts at, the, <laughs> at first too. I'm like, wait a minute, why am I thinking positively about this? Wait a minute, <laughs> I mean, so if you know, if people are shocked, well, you know, get in line, right? I mean, <laughs> right behind me, because, right. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to hold back something uh, that I, I have uh, a good argument for because it may offend my sensibilities or things that I've said in the past or. Uh, my listeners, um, I, I think that the show will grow in the long run if I just, you know, really try and keep to that straight and narrow of, of being honest and not uh, not attempting to temper things for the sake of popularity. Um, I think philosophers who try and do that, uh, you know, it's short-term gain, long-term pain, I think. Yeah, and you really want to get on the Christian's good side, Stefan, because we, we you know, we have the money. We'll give you all the donations. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. No, but but uh, I certainly, apparently I certainly there's donate, a, and I will be donating gap. more if I ever get a, a pay raise of some sort. <laughs> but, well, I appreciate that. And, uh, let me, <laughs> you know, I, I sometimes wish that almost that I, I made calculations based on financial utility. Uh, but, uh, I think that's, I mean, obviously that, that would be very much, I know you're not suggesting oh, it would yeah, be very much against any kind of reasonable integrity and it would certainly not work even if I thought it was worthwhile, but yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. All right. That's thanks, Stefan. Very cool. Take care. Up next is Andrea. Andrea wrote in and said, I'm in my final year of college studying for a bachelor's in screenwriting but I've completely lost my motivation and drive to get the degree. How can I stop procrastinating and get the work done? Panic, fear, starvation. Uh, <laughs> okay, Andrea, go ahead. Um, Is there something you want to add to that? No, no, I'd actually prefer you to ask me questions and I'll answer them because I haven't had a long conversation in English in about four years and I'm really anxious about it. Oh, okay, no problem at all. All right. Would you like me to switch to your native language? <laughs> no, it's all, it's okay. Okay, good. I'm, I was really bluffing there. I'm sure you knew that. So, um, okay. Um, when when did this uh, start? Um, I think about two months ago. Um, I well, I was I was actually trying to uh, write a screenplay about um, a six year old boy, and I was trying to start. I was actually aiming to promote peaceful parenting, but um, as I was sort of thinking about the script um i kept um i kept finding all of these plot holes and um after i sorry i'm really really anxious i can't no you're doing great um you're doing well okay um i, I really don't know what to say i'm sorry i'm, I'm a bit stuck here well do you, do you want me to just jump straight in? I mean, we don't need a whole yeah, lot yeah. of... Uh, yeah. Right, okay. Great. So, uh, the, the end of college is the end of childhood, right? Yeah. Now, I've had a look at your adverse childhood experience score, and you are not, uh, you are not very well prepared for adulthood, right? Yeah. Right. Do you, do you want to talk... I mean, I could read it out, or if you want to just talk about a few things that you think may have uh, <clears throat> affected that. 
Well, first of all, when I was when I was little, um, I used to write a lot. All of I, I kept a diary, and I would uh, I would write all sort of things that happened during the day in it. And um, my mom always, you know, used to just take it and um, read it out loud with my father, and they would make fun of me. And uh, oh, like they'd find your journal or whatever, and then they just yeah make fun of you. That's yeah, and. Um, you know, my father always used to tell me that I won't do anything, absolute, absolutely anything with, uh, with the creative stuff that I had in my mind. And um, and do you know why he did that? Why certain parents tend to be highly opposed to creative work on the part of their kids? No, not really. It's because they don't want their children to uh, write about the family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, that's what sort of happened um, two months ago when I said that I started panicking. Um, I wanted to write this um, this screenplay about uh, abusive households, and um, you know, sort of my I started remembering a lot of stuff from my childhood, and um, I would always. Well, my parents are never going to actually read my screenplay because they really don't care. They just want to, they just want me to get a degree and that's all. So they, you know, so they can tell their friends that their daughter graduated college and all of that. Um, but I, I was just thinking how my father would react if he would read the screenplay. And uh, he would most probably, I, I don't know, I, I really don't know. I, I, I kept thinking that he would just break into my house and, uh, you know, actually beat me to death. Um, and that... Which obviously makes writing kind of high stakes, right? Yeah. <laughs> kind of scary, right? I mean, if I'm honest, then, you know, I could get killed, right? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's writing under Soviet-style punishments, right? Yeah, it's really weird because you know I'm already 23 and I, uh, I keep, I just keep being really afraid of dying at the hand of my father and I, I you know I, I know that I can call the police if he's going to come here or stuff like that but I I do realize that rationally but not emotionally I know it's um well sure because I mean you experience beatings. In the past, from him, I mean, and not even the too distant past. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at, at those times, I mean, the police were not an option, right? Yeah, right. 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 And now I changed the script, actually, because I, I realized that without therapy, I can't write anything about, um, you know, peaceful parenting. Um, and because um, I, I, you know, I have to figure to sort, sort myself out before writing about such a delicate subject I'm, I can't just treat this superficially for an exam class and um, yeah and I changed my script and I still can't can't find I'm can't find the drive to write it to actually start writing it I, I no I'm just um, I'm currently just writing the outline I didn't even right. anything for the for the exam for the final exam it's um, it's a brutal thing to write about. Yeah, I know. It's a brutal thing. That, you know, I've, I've mentioned this on the show before, but one of the most terrifying plays of family dysfunction is called A Long Day's Journey Into Night by Eugene O'Neill. 
And it was such a brutal play for him to write. His wife says, you know, he'd be in his study, he'd come out just like drained of blood and, and shaking, hands shaking and so on. He was writing the play. And after he finished the play, uh, he would not allow it to be produced. He would not allow the play to be mounted, to, to be shown anywhere. In fact, I don't know if this was ever enacted, but my understanding was that he would not allow the play to be produced until 10 years after his death. <laughs> and that is, uh, and, and um, Pink, <laughs> just sort of swing, uh, Pink wrote um, a family portrait, which was about, as far as I understand it, her own family. Yeah. And uh, it was horrifying for her mother that, that she wrote this family. And, and I think it would cause some significant, that she wrote this song and it caused some significant problems. Uh, I think Tennessee Williams, uh, after he wrote Glass Menagerie, which was his first big success, his mother came to see the play. And uh, obviously his mother's portrayed in a lot of his plays and very directly in the Glass Menagerie. And um, I think she basically just said, uh, well, who did you base her on? <laughs> who did you base the mom on? Like, I don't know if she was, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something like that. But, but writing about your history is, um, is very tough. It's very tough. And it's very tough in particular to do it in a way that gives parents responsibility. Yeah. You can you can give parents oh well they were poor or he was drunk or whatever right, but yeah. the the idea that parents could be immoral is is still such a taboo uh, in in society that uh, particularly mothers right but uh, it is a very very challenging thing to uh, to write about. Yeah, especially in this moment. I mean, I um I still want to write a screenplay, but I'm. I'm just willing to give it as much time as it needs to. I can write it in four or five years, and I don't. I really don't want to rush it because it's, it's extremely important to get it right. And um, so I sort of changed the screenplay into something um, less personal, but I I just still can. I'm I'm not that afraid of the, 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 the final exam, sorry, sorry, I'm rambling, um, well, the final exam, so, I'm sorry. Um, the thing is that although the new subject isn't as, part, as personal as the last one was, I just still can't find myself um, being able to write it. Um, I really don't know why. Actually, I really don't care. What do you mean? Sorry. I know I know it's not your first language, but, you know, find myself able to write it. I mean, yeah, sorry, do you sorry. expect to sort of wake sorry. up and see yourself in another room finishing a screenplay? I mean, you don't no. find yourself doing something. You do it or you don't no, do it, I, but you I, don't trip over yourself doing something, right? Yeah, yeah, right. No, I... I that's, that's a way of putting it that, that makes you passive, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> I know something... I, I really don't care at all about the degree, and um, you know I'm I'm obviously I'm in film school, and uh, it was a huge disappointment for me. Um, obviously, it's a state university, and it's full of you know leftists and and so on. 
and um, I don't know. I it's I just I I don't know exactly what happens, but I just just can't can start writing. I'm sorry. Well, do you feel that um, do you feel that uh, what you want to uh, write about is not going to be acceptable to the professor? Um, yeah, I know that nobody. I I know that um, nobody actually cares cares there about what we're trying to write and so on. And that I'm. You know, I can I can basically write anything, and I'm still going to pass the exam, um, and that sort of frustrates me, and just you know gives me that feeling that everything is in vain, and that I'm just going to have a piece of paper after I finish college, but that's going to be it, and so on. And um, I don't know it sort of crushes me in a in a really weird sense because I came here with a lot of high expectations, and then it's you know, it all went to, basically went to nothing, turned into nothing. So it's because you feel that you can't fail, that your motivation is down? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Everybody gets an A. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, 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 um, You can't do things for other people. Yeah. Everything which is sustainable and I think of real value comes out of the passion that you have for what it is that you're doing. So maybe you'll get an A, maybe you'll get an F, whatever, right? But you cannot do these things for other people. If you have a story in you that you want to tell, then you sit down and you write it. Yeah. And you keep writing it and you don't worry about what other people think, about what other people like. Yeah. The stories that connect the best are the ones that are deepest within you and the degree to which you focus on other people's reaction to what you're doing while you're doing it is the degree to which I think it loses power. So if you have a story that you want to tell, and the story doesn't have to be, quote, deep or meaningful, it can be frivolous, it can be fun. I mean, Oscar Wilde is a delightful playwright. And, I mean, he is seriously funny, if that makes any sense. But you, you cannot look for external rewards to provoke inner greatness, inner concentration, inner focus. And in fact, I, I think the stuff that has the most value to humanity tends to be the things which provoke a negative reaction in some people, right? Yeah, right, right. You know, nobody's going to be that mad at the new Jurassic Park movie, right? <laughs> not a strong dinosaur, not a strong dinosaur lobby left anymore. <coughs> but if you're going to do something important and great, then it is, you know, the idea that you would focus on extrinsic rewards, right? And and we all know this because I mean, I mean the, the people who tend to be the most successful in their field tend to keep going even when they don't need to, right? I mean it's not like Steven Spielberg needs needs to make another movie or 
Brad Pitt needs to make another movie or whatever, right? I mean, they are very successful in their field and they keep doing what they're doing. They keep working at what they're working at. And um, that inner drive is what you need to get to. It's hard, of course, when you've been raised in an abusive environment, Andrea, of course, what happens is you end up focusing on other people. Focus out, focus out, focus on other people. Are they, is it safe? Are they dangerous? Are they in a good mood? Are they in a bad mood? Are they angry? Are they aggressive? Are they upset? Are they tense? Did they get bad news? Right? You're focusing on other people all the time. And what happens then is that when you need to transition, when you need to transition to a focus on your own life, when you've had to be raised, focused for survival on other people, then when you become an adult, it's like you've been leaning your whole life against a wind and then the wind stops and you fall down. And you're right on the cusp, you're right on the edge of adulthood, independent adulthood. And there's something within you that is demanded that has not been nourished throughout your life, but rather has been suppressed, oppressed, punished. I mean, for those who've not grown up in, in violent or abusive households, it's, it's a hard thing to understand the degree to which this hypervigilance, this concern for the moods of others, the degree to which that dominates your thinking as a child. It's obvious. I mean, you, you know, if, if you fall into a lion pen in the zoo, you're pretty much focused on the lions, right? Yeah. You're not really going to notice anything else. You really need to focus on that, which is dangerous within your envir environment. That's how human consciousness and indeed almost all animal consciousness works, is that you have to focus on what is dangerous within your environment. When you're prey, right? I mean, I guess the deer is dangerous to the grass, but the deer only has their eyes out for the wolves, right? Right. And so when you grow up in a violent household, the focus on others, the focus on the moods and, and needs and preferences of others, the, the need to manipulate people into not hitting you, that is a constant focus and it, it hollows you out. There's so much that doesn't develop or doesn't at least develop organically or properly when you spend your time focusing on other people. To me, there's such a narcissism in violence because violence causes other people to focus on you all the time. It's like the mom who comes home and is like slamming the drawers and all that kind of stuff. It's, it, there's a kind of I, me, me, I in violence, this kind of narcissism and focus on me and I want to be the center of attention at all times and I do that by being dangerous, right? And when you grow up in that kind of environment, the idea of having a goal that comes organically from within yourself that allows you to focus and concentrate on yourself is hard. Very hard. And I would not say it's so much procrastination as I would say that shifting the focus from others to yourself is to develop a muscle that should have been developed more organically over many years, but needs to be developed more quickly. 
and counterintuitively, right? Because when you've been in a lion cage for 20 years, you can get out of the cage, but the lions just follow you in your head, right? And, and you know, I, I don't mean to sound negative, but in some ways, I don't know if we ever get out of that cage. And I don't mean by that that we can't have happy and productive lives. But what I mean by that is that we are always shaped by our earliest experiences. Now, we can make that for the better. So I had a violence and abusive uh, family when I was a child. And my way to make the cage my home is to do the opposite. I can never be somebody who didn't have that level of violence, and I don't. You can never be that person either. We can never be the people who were never hit. We can never be the people who were never screamed at. We can never be the people who weren't beat, weren't weren't beaten up. There's a guy who used to run a, a show called America's Most Wanted. I think he ended up starting that show because his daughter was murdered, so he dedicated his life to helping people catch violent criminals. In other words, the rest of his life, he's standing by the graveside of his daughter. He's just doing it in a way that helps. But he never leaves his daughter's grave. And I'm not sure that I ever leave my family home. But what I can do is observe and drink in the lessons of my history and use it to create as much good as possible. That is how you frustrate the devil. As the devil provokes you to wrong and you take those lessons and turn it to right. And sorry, I just, uh, just got a correction. Adam Walsh, uh, it was his, um, his son, who was uh, who was killed? And uh, so I think that my guess, Andrew, would be that you're at a tipping point, and that tipping point is to try and find a way to focus on your inner drives, your inner needs, and let down the need to scan your surroundings and need to scan those around you and when you move out of structure and you know the end of college is the end of other people telling you what to do right it's uh, it's the end of other people giving you assignments you know when i was in theater school i always got cast in a play <laughs> right but it's different to then go out and audition right right and the end of external structure exposes some of the challenges of having to focus on other people so consistently and persistently throughout your life. Does, does this make any sense? Yeah, it does. Um, another problem is that the, my parents are actually calling me two or three times a day and they're, you know, and they're just asking, so how's, how's writing? Mm. How are you on the bachelor's degree? You know? And um, I, I, I really have no time to actually sit down and breathe and think about my needs because they're always there, you know, they're always calling me. And um, um, 
you know, I obviously, well, I obviously have the, you know, have the option not to answer, but I'm just way too afraid not to do that. So, um, I'm guessing you also don't have the option to say, you know, can I get a, a week or two off just because it's not helping me concentrate? Yeah, no, no, no. My, my mom's hysterical and no, I really can't do that. No. I'm also going to assume that they have no idea that they're not helping, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually said that once to my mom. I was, you know, mom, you're just putting pressure on me and I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm going to make it like that. And she just started, started screaming. And then, uh, actually my father called me, uh, three or four days ago and just said that nobody likes me because, um, I'm, you know, I'm, um, you know, stuff like, can't you see that you have, you've got nobody to work with because you're just so unbearable and he was just, you know, projecting the, the choices that he has been made in his life. He has made, sorry, in his life and, uh, you know, just kept feeling me like, kept making me feel like crap. Um, that's basically all that they do. They just, right. you know, basically for call me and just start bullying me. Right. Well, certainly, um, how much time do you have to, um, or when ideally should you have a first draft done by? Um, in about two or three weeks. Yeah. Right, so this is not a time to to do anything in particularly proactive with your family. Right? I yeah, yeah. understand that. I get that. Oh, I get that. Um. Well, I plan on doing that after I, fin I finish college. I want to start therapy to get a job and then start therapy. And uh, right, right. Take, take well, then I'm afraid there's a. I'm afraid then that there's only one answer. <laughs> You're not gonna like it, but there's only one answer. Are you ready? Yeah, I am. Okay. You just have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Like, I'm I'm sorry. You, you know, we we don't have a lot of time for beating around the bush. I mean, you got a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, I know. So that means that you just have to do it. And when you've been raised in an aggressive environment, self-discipline often feels like self-abuse, right? Like you're being bullied. I get that, but it's not. You know, the the answer to my mom screamed at me every day to brush my teeth is not to refrain from brushing your teeth, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. And if, you know, what is colloquially called discipline was inflicted upon you as a child, if uh, you were abused as a child and aggression and all that, then being firm with yourself can feel like self-bullying. Yeah. But I'm afraid that you have to. I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but you, you have to. You've got a couple of weeks, and, and you know what that means? Is you've got to get yourself 10 pages a day written, right? Yeah. And you just have to make those fingers move. 
You know, it's that old thing, writing is easy. All you do is stare at a blank sheet of paper until beads of blood form on your forehead. <laughs> I mean, you have some idea of a story that you want to tell. And you just have to start telling it. You have to, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan when it comes to writing. Get it down and then get it right. <laughs> I know everyone writes in a different kind of way or whatever. So whatever your process is, but I'm a big fan of just just get, just get something down. Like I'm working on a book on parenting at the moment and I just have to, I just have to get the thoughts down. You know, maybe they need to be rearranged or edited or maybe even deleted or moved. Uh, but I, I have to just get, get it down. And everyone has a different process of, of working. Uh, I, I pace and voice dictate. <clears throat> But just because so much experience podcasting, that's I used to write by typing, but I haven't done that uh, in I don't know probably ten years. Like just typing, so now I voice dictate, and uh, I think that's actually pretty good for screenplays because you are trying to approximate spoken language and so on. But you just have to uh, to get it down and get it right. And for me, at least, when it came to art, to to creative writing. Um, you 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 just have to keep throwing shit at your characters. <laughs> I mean, you just let me look at the movie Gravity. It was like, and then this terrible thing happened, and then this terrible thing happened, and then this terrible thing happened. Or like Interstellar, in which case, and these terrible physics happened, and these non-existent physics happened, <laughs> and then Matt Damon turned on me. Right. So <laughs> you just you just keep throwing crap. I, I remember years ago talking to a woman I was going out with when I was starting. A novel. I started working on a novel. And, you know, she said, oh, you know, these, these, these things, these negative things are so outlandish or you know, unbelievable or whatever, right? Oh, she was a joy to be creative around. And um, I, I said, oh, come on, Hamlet. How, how does Hamlet open up? The, guy, the guy's dead ghost comes back and tells him that the, the, the uncle who's screwing his mom killed his father. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of a MacGuffin, right? Here we go. We've got something that is an incitement to action and something that gets the momentum going. Or like uh, I think in the stand, Stephen King was saying uh, he he was writing the book and it was like, oh, too many characters, too much is going on. I know, I'll just kill half of them off. <laughs> you know, something like you just You just have to make decision, decisions that stuff is going to happen to your characters, most of it bad. And... Just keep throwing shit at them and have them deal with it or not, right? I mean, that's, I think, the way that it has to uh, work. And I, I mean, I wish I could sort of give you something more sophisticated, but, you know, just put your characters through hell and see how they do. Yeah. Well, the other problem, you know, um, well, obviously the main problem is with my parents, but the other problem is that I, I just don't seem, well, I know it's a really silly way to put it that I don't really care about my degree, but... Um, no, no, but who cares about... No, forget <laughs> the degree. I'm telling you to care all about right. your characters. Oh, all right, all right, okay. Yeah, forget about it. The degree, fine, you know, you do whatever, but view the degree as a great excuse to make yourself do stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, can I, can I tell you a tiny secret? Please do. Okay, just, just you and me, nobody else. Okay, everyone else stop listening. It's just between you and me. Are you ready? Yeah. I really didn't want to do a show tonight. <laughs> I didn't. 
That's very rare. That's very rare for me. But I just, I really didn't want to do a show tonight. I just felt, I don't know, a little tired and, you know, I don't know, whatever. It was just, I just, I really didn't get, everyone else still don't listen. Hey, you in particular. But I really didn't feel like doing a show tonight. Can I tell you something? Yeah. It's a pretty good show. <laughs> yeah, it is. Had to do it. I mean, I could have canceled, right? I could have just said, oh, you know, my voice, my instrument is too delicate for, <laughs> for a rant. <laughs> right? But I just, I didn't. I don't feel like doing a show tonight. And um, this show was a, I mean, because I didn't feel like doing a show. If, if it wasn't a Wednesday night, I wouldn't sit there and go, oh, I know, I'll spend three hours doing a show tonight. I mean, I, I wouldn't have. But this is an opportunity for me to do a show. And this happens. I mean, Eugene O'Neill's dad was a famous actor, and uh, he did a show when his, uh, his son, I think, was born, is stillborn. Um, they switch names in Long Day's Journey and Tonight. The kids, he actually gives himself the name of the dead kid. <sighs> anyway, um, but uh, he had to, uh, well, he decided to go and, and do a show. Um, it was a swashbuckling adventure play, not nothing particularly deep. But he went and did his show when his son was born dead. Mm-hmm. So everyone else can start listening again. Thanks for your patience. Um, but sometimes you've just got to do stuff. And because you had you know, a lifetime of being terrorized and beaten up and ordered around, the idea of making yourself do stuff seems, I would assume, like that can't be right, <laughs> right? Yeah. But but don't let uh, abusive discipline rob you of self-discipline, right? Right. You got to you got to just you got to get up, you got to have your coffee or whatever it is that you got to do. Um when I was working on novels, I used to go to Starbucks and uh, I didn't want to spend much money, so I I get a cafe americano rather than a latte because it was cheaper <laughs> and you know, nurse that thing like I think it evaporated more than I drank it. And I'd sit in the corner on a old uh, computer with two megs of RAM, and um, and uh, I'd listen to music. Uh, and I, I generally would listen to the music that was appropriate to the time frame that I was uh, writing about. And um, I would just, I just have to keep writing. And I'd know that some of it would not be good, and I'd know that some of it would have to be thrown out. But I just, you know, you 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 know, it's like it's like if you're <laughs> You're stuck in the woods, you know. You you got to walk somewhere. Lost in the woods, you, you 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 can. I know they say stand or whatever, right? But that's, you know, if if no if it's nighttime and no, no one's coming and and you you've got to walk, you've got to walk somewhere. I don't know if that's the worst advice ever, but the analogy is is sort of clear as far as you you have to just you have to get some words down on a piece of paper. And yes, it, you know, it may be not good and, and maybe you'll need to throw out half the day's work or all the day's work, but at least you'll get the motor moving, right? Right. Right. I really can't thank you enough for what you just said. I, I just, you know, had, lot, had lost all, all hope. <laughs> An overreaction is a loss. Yeah. Right. And overreaction is a loss in general. Right. So if you're like, well, my parents bullied me, so I'm never going to make myself do anything. Then your parents have still won. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Because this is your value and your choice and what you want to do. 
And, you know, there are shows that we've done, um, you know, Robin Williams, we put out really quickly the Elliot Roger video, the Bill Cosby stuff. I mean, we really burned the midnight oil. And it wasn't like, hey, you know, let's just do this because it's fun. We really worked hard on those shows and those shows have done uh, very, very well. And um, there are other shows where we didn't do that and they've done well too. So it's not, you know, but it, it you just make yourself do stuff. I mean, <laughs> I sort of, that's, the, that's the worst advice. You know, I get it sort of. A, but you just, it, it comes down to that. You know, you have the free choice, Andrea, to, to, to get up and to sit down and whatever you need to do and just say, well, I'm not getting up until I have five or ten pages written. I don't care if it's all work and no play makes Andrea a dull girl, but it's got to be something, right? Yeah. And that really is the secret to success is just you just have to make stuff happen. And there's lots of times when you won't feel like it. You know, did you think uh, every time a baseball player goes out on the diamond that he's just in love with the game and couldn't be happier? And No, sometimes they have a headache. Sometimes they just got bad news. Sometimes whatever, right? I mean, but there's just you just have to get things done. And those people who are willing to act in a consistent manner to get things done are the people who succeed in the world. And those people who give themselves excuses, and you have a great excuse, don't get me wrong, you had a terrible childhood. You had an ACE of seven, adverse childhood experience score of seven. Brutal stuff. So you have that excuse if you want it. But that taking that excuse and moving forward with that excuse will mean you never get out of that childhood state. Yeah. I'm glad I did a show tonight. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad as well. I'm going to um, actually translate the screen the screenplay in English well, with the help of my fiancé because he's much better oh. at it. And I'm going to start. Is he there? Did I just hear him? <laughs> yeah, 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 he's here. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope that, that I hope that the door is open and at least one of your feet are on the floor. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> And I'm going to. But, uh, I'm going. No, and, and send it over if you. I'd like to. I'd like yeah. to have a look if you don't mind. Would be would be really great. I'd love. Mm. I'd really love some feedback from you. Sure, send it over. I'd be happy to have a look. I, I like the artistic brain. Um, I haven't exercised it uh, as much as I'd like, but uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it's well worth. Um, yeah, it'd be well worth. Uh, I, I'd I'd be I'd be I'd be honored to have a look. Mm, that's great. That's gonna be really motivating for her, Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope so. I hope so. Now, but but it's not gonna be like so. It's easy now. Now you're like raring to go. Tomorrow morning you won't be. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna sleep on the. <laughs> <laughs> it's all over, right? So it, you know, you don't need me now, um, but you need me in the morning, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's when you just have to say, okay, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> and you can resent doing it too. <coughs> I mean, I was, I was walking, I was just going down to get ready. To, uh, <laughs> I was even grumbling to myself like some, like Ed Asner with a hemorrhoid, you know. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, okay, we can do it. <laughs> and it was fun, right? So just, you have to just make yourself do it. Yeah, I will. I definitely will. All right. All right. Well, keep us posted. And um, uh, yeah, if you want to send me something, I'd be happy to have a look. And uh, best of luck. And um, I think you'll be surprised at, you know, how much willpower there is involved in creativity. You know, this idea that you just, something's going to hit you and, and come pouring out of you and so on. There are a few times when that's happened. A few times when that's happened. In, in, but that's usually because people have had a long, flourishing career beforehand. Uh, 
like the guy who wrote Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is a sort of very famous story that uh, in an English boarding school, if I remember rightly, has been made into a movie approximately 12 million times. But um, uh, he, um, he wrote that in three days or something like that. But I think he'd been a very experienced writer at some point. And there are other... Um, other examples of how, you know, stuff is just sort of poured out of people, but that's usually, that's the prize after many, many hours of, of sweating blood to, to get stuff down on paper. So, um, yeah, I hope it works out and, uh, I'm sure it will just, you know, cause that's just something you can make yourself sit down and type that, that you can do. So, yeah. all right. Thank all right. Well, thank you everybody so much. I'm uh, glad that, uh, <laughs> in a, uh, um, that we had a show about uh, making things happen when I originally didn't feel like doing a show, but um, I guess it uh, <laughs> it kind of hangs together well that way. And thanks, of course, everyone so much for calling in. Freedomainradio.com slash, hey, I'm not done. I know it sounds like I'm done. Got to put the donation. Pay. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, good, good. Don't hit that pause. Uh, Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Massively helpful and useful uh, if you like uh, the kind of challenges that we throw at the audience members uh, and would like to step in to take some of the uh, nuclear shadows left by former donors and subscribers. We would be thrilled <laughs> to see that trend reverse itself. So freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. And have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.